Dude, I'm so happy to be here. Dude, I'm so happy you're here. <laughs> I've been reading your book, and it's fucking excellent. You're a really good writer. Thank you so much. I killed myself doing that book. That is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. How long did it take? About two years. Wow. And when I got the deal, I had this delusional idea that it would be like writing 25,000 word essays. And this was so wrong. This was so, so, so much harder than anything I'd ever done. Why was it so much harder than writing essays? Well, when you write essays, you are doing like these kind of short things. It's limited. You have a beginning, a middle, and an end. No characters, no dialogue, you know, simple narrative. Whereas this man, like keeping a plot together over 300 pages, and then that plot is your life, which by definition has no plot. Right. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. It, was it hard to recall all the moments in your life and do them justice? So hard. And also for, for this book, because I work as a journalist, I, I fact-checked it as best I could. And nothing is more personally painful than fact-checking the ends of various friendships and relationships and realizing what a jerk you were at the time. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> like, oh man, I had a whole victimization narrative and oh, oh that was quite, quite wrong. <laughs> I think they probably did too. Everybody does, you know, everybody, I mean, it's, it's, it's really strange when you go back and talk to people that you haven't talked to for a long time and you're like, okay, what is your, and you know, no, all judgments aside, let's just give me your version of what happened and I'll tell you what I think happened and you're like oh my god I don't know what the fuck the truth is anymore <laughs> yeah I have this one thing where there is this one girl she recalled something and she recalled it one way and then when she realized that it was actually two days later than she thought it was which made it look like there was an article she had written which had contradicted it she kept insisting it hadn't happened and I was like man here's your Twitter here's my Twitter here's the Twitter of the two other people who are at brunch here's the email confirming it it happened on this day and finally she was like, I just give up. I give up, but I don't remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very strange when people are confronted by that fact, too. Yeah, I, I had a, a, a friend that I'm no longer friends with that insisted something. And then when my other friend jumped in and said, that's not what happened at all, that is... It was a psychedelic drug talk. <laughs> I'm trying to like, beat around the bush like I'm on regular radio or something. But uh, he was insisting that he uh, got me on this uh, psychedelic drug the first time. And my, my other friend was like, um, no, that was mine. It was my drugs. I was there. Like, what are you talking about, man? And then he just sort of stopped talking to us. <laughs> just like, yeah, ended the conversation. like kind of sulked off and then comes back later with a new subject. Well, people love to, you know, they love somehow or another to get glory from the past and like, like some or another it it's one of those things that never works sort of like name dropping like name dropping has never worked ever no one has ever said I'm really good friends with Leonardo DiCaprio and, <laughs> and so, someone's gone whoa let me give you a movie now <laughs> you're fucking amazing no immediately people go oh this guy's a name dropper you know or he just happens to say it and it happens to be true there's a fine line but everybody knows what the difference is like when you're a name dropper it comes you could you can smell it in a sentence you know it's just like it comes off in the air so this book is um it's it's fucking super intimate like you you like just just cut the skin away and open your chest up and just the whole world can see your soul you know you, you peeled it out I tried my best I mean I just wanted to do something honest you know well, it's definitely that, I, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I wasn't there, obviously. Um, two years is a long time to write something. Like, did you? how many times did you have to go back over it? And oh, God, like seven drafts. And there's 100 pages of cuts from this book, too. That's in another Word file that I might mine someday for other essays. But 
it was like over and over. And you know, because I had never written a book before, I didn't, I didn't realize, you know, how much extra you write. I feel like I was like building a block of marble basically out of words. And then I had to like cut away at the horrible, ugly block of marble I had made. And then finally something cool emerged. Yeah, they all say that. All the great writers say that. Like uh, my friend Steve Rennell always uses this quote, you have to kill your babies. Yeah, exactly. That's what they say, right? That's like the common writer's conversation, kill your babies. But then you can keep your babies in another document and you can devote like one essay per baby where they make sense. <laughs> That's uh, similar to stand-up comedy in a lot of ways. Like one of the, the hardest things about comedy is recognizing like um, a bit sometimes it's just too fat there's too much stuff in it and you have to figure out what to chop off but you have like these emotional connections to these punchlines like but i love this part i love saying it this is like my favorite part but that favorite part doesn't necessarily enhance the whole thing so you have to kind of chip it away and then the whole thing will be better without it but it's it's hard to do right oh god i mean the best piece i ever of advice i ever got when i started writing was um my friend Lori, who's a really cool journalist said to me the worst articles I've ever written are the ones where I try to say everything about a subject. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, you, your your style is really interesting too because uh, one of the things that's really cool is like you've got a lot of illustrations that go along with these stories. Now, are these illustrations that you added in after the fact, or are they illustrations that you sort of drew while you were experiencing these things? A few of them I drew at the time. Like there are some old illustrations, like from Turkey or from Paris, that I did when I was a teenager. Some stuff from Occupy. But I would say like over a hundred of them I did new for the book. Oh, wow. So that's a, a lot of extra work on top of that as well. Oh, my God. God how many days were you doing this every day? Or like, how were you uh, finding the time? Because I know you're so busy doing journalism. You're busy doing art. Like, how did you find the time to do this? Um, I was a really horrible person to be around for quite a few months. Uh, I have the coolest boyfriend in the world. Thank you, Fred, for putting up with me during Powerful this. Fred. Fred, Fred is Fred is awesome. I I had a few things. First, I had friends with a house in the country, and they let me stay there for oh. a number of weeks. And they didn't have internet signal in a lot of it, so I and I didn't bring any of my fun books that I like to read. So I was just stuck. It was just me and this fucking thing, and we we're going to beat each other. I rented a lot of hotel rooms. I had a an editor who put a beat down on me and was like, you can't keep uh, going off to other countries. You actually have to write this book that I contracted you for. I, at one point he was like, are you fleeing to war zones so you don't have to look <laughs> at your book contract? Is that how it's going? I, I just, I think towards the end, I didn't do anything but work on it. I, I just became this horrible like troll beast that didn't wash her hair and would growl at anyone who came near living entirely on coffee and just made it. That was how I did it. That is a good way to do it, right? If you can get somewhere without the internet. Yeah. I used to write a lot on airplanes. I used to look forward to airplane flights. I'd be like, okay, I'm stuck in this seat. There's no internet access. And then what the fuck do the airlines do? They put internet on the goddamn planes. <laughs> I know. And then you're like, oh, I need to see what someone says about me on Twitter. Oh, no, someone was wrong on Twitter. I must remedy this. Yeah, I'm going to go on Amazon, buy a new pair of sneakers. You know, it's like, it's exactly. Like, it's so easy to just get distracted nowadays. It's just the world is becoming more and more available. You know, and if you're off in a cabin in the woods, with no internet access. Yeah, you're. <sighs> You're, you're stuck. You're, you're confronted with your own work to do. Yeah, it's so attractive. That's such an attractive 
idea to be off at a cabin. It's so romantic, right? To be off at a cabin in the woods by yourself, working on your, your great work. Except whenever I'm actually there, I want to like dig holes in my arms because I'm like, <laughs> where is the Wi-Fi signal? <laughs> there is a guy that I tweeted about today. Uh, there was an article that I tweeted where this guy decided he wanted to live by himself in the, uh, I think it was the Northwest Territories. He was going to do it for a solid year. And, but he made it six months, and then he, he had a satellite phone. He's like, come get me. I can't fucking do this anymore. But he was just going crazy, like, by himself for six months. And it's a, it's a fascinating story. This is the guy right here. Norwegian adventurer spent six months alone in the Northwest Territory wilderness. And uh, it's really cool because the guy is he's very good at describing like what he felt and what it was like and what he expected versus what it was really like. One of the things that he said that I thought was really interesting, he said, we are not meant to be alone. And I kind of feel that way, too. I feel like, I, you know, people romanticize this idea of being this hermit that's off in the woods, you know, the, the, the monk that's out meditating in the forest by himself. But that shit is like... It's like holding your breath. It's kind of cool for a little while, but you don't you don't want to do it very long. No, man. I think I mean it makes you go crazy. Like being mm -hmm. in solitary things makes you go crazy. I recently did a really big investigative piece on, on some long-term solitary prisoners. And these guys like were really smart guys. They were you know, really um strong guys in my opinion. Like one of them I, I consider really a genius. But he had been in solitary for 14 years, man, 14 years. And um, Who is this? His name's Andre Jacobs. He uh, was part of this uh, group of whistleblowers called the Dallas Six that um, basically they were giving information about guards doing, um, beating people up and being racist in this prison in PA. And they were all in solitary and the guards retaliated. And then when one of the other guys, Carrington, sued the DA for um, not protecting him from the guards, the DA turned around and charged them all with rioting. And I got really into the case because I was like, this seems semantically interesting. How do you riot if you're in solitary? I, yeah. I consider rioting a group activity. Like if someone's <laughs> rioting in solitary, you could just leave them there and they'd get tired eventually and then the riot would be over, you know? Yeah, like, that's hilarious. They called it rioting. So there, so I, uh, I did an investigative piece and eventually I got like video and stuff, but and it was bullshit, and I really hope their trial goes well in February. But as part of it, I, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to um, two of the guys, and, I mean, you suffer real mental trauma from doing that. And, like, no one, even, like, the smartest, toughest, best person who has, like, a really loving mom that is really devoted to giving them, you know, all the books and all the support, even that person will suffer, like, real, real trauma from that. Yeah, I've always wondered, like when Bradley Manning was arrested and then later became Chelsea Manning and spent how many years was he, she, you know, whenever the transition makes sense, uh, how many years was she in solitary? Like, like it was quite a long time. Like and three years, I think, and right? naked. Yeah. Naked and in cold conditions. Like, they literally tortured her. Like, they tortured her. Like, they, what they decided... When do you when do you say her and when is him? Because when did she decide to transition? She, when she was in there, right? She, she like announced the transition um, right after her trial. But she, um, I mean, if you look at her chat logs with Adrian Lamo, she has one line where she says that what she's afraid of is being known to the world as a boy. So I think, I think she decided it herself a long a long time ago. But before she was arrested. Yeah, before she was arrested. But that uh, she just didn't publicly announce it for a long time. That is a crazy. The, the, the worst thing is to be known as a boy. 
Yeah. Whoa. Yeah, it was, a, it was a line from the chat log. And anyone who's listening to this, like, please fact check it. I don't want to get it wrong, but that's right. what I remember. <clears throat> but I remember thinking, like, who wouldn't lose their fucking mind being naked in a room by yourself for years? Like, what did they, they thought that... She was a um, a hazard to herself or something like yeah, that. Yeah, their their bullshit excuses always like, "Oh, you're a suicide risk, so we have to have you naked with no glasses, nothing to read, uh, a horrible like suicide prevention blanket that you can't like you know wrap around you, and just we have to like torture you because you might be a suicide risk." For like, is she in like regular prison now or still in solitary? She's in regular prison right now. Actually, like one of my most cherished possessions in the universe is she wrote me a letter once because I, I drew a birthday card for her. She dots her eyes with little doves. It's really cute. With doves? Yeah, she draws little doves on them. Every eye? Yeah. I hope this isn't a long letter. No, it's a short one. It was a, it was a gracious one. It was, it was, I think it, it reminded me of like, you know, the thank you card that like someone very graciously writes, someone who's given them a gift. And how, but what a bizarre set of circumstances. Someone who was a soldier who transitioned to becoming a woman and then sends letters that all have the, the animal that's known as the symbol of peace yeah. over all the eyes. I mean, I think from her life, you get the sense that part of the reason she wanted to join the army was she's just like so smart and she just wanted to go to college. I mean, um, from what I know, kind of about reading her life story, like this, this was someone who like her happiest time was like dating a dude who was around sort of like the MIT hacker scene. And I think that if she was middle class and not poor, she just would have like gone to school and gotten a computer science degree. And that would have been the whole thing. It's incredible that someone who exposes crimes and that's, uh, that's the only way you could look at what happened with Edward Snowden and with Bradley Manning. I mean, you could say that they did what they did was treasonous. You could, but is it really treasonous when you're exposing crime? Like, isn't it supposed to be illegal to commit crime? And if your government is doing things that are illegal, isn't it your job as a patriot to expose those things? Like, when, do you, when is it not treasonous? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they're, both of them are heroes. Um, if no one is putting their own government in check then that government will just tend to concentrating more and more power and people in it will concentrate to doing worse and worse things because there's no sort of supervision. And there's no way that you can love your country and not call it on its bullshit at all. I think that the opposite thing is treason. I think it's treason to say, like, just because it's my country, any crime is justified. But they're, what they're doing, though, is so horrible because they're making it so that no one ever does anything like this again. It's so, They make such a giant example. Like, Julian Assange is literally like going crazy staying in that one house in in london he can't leave if he leaves they'll arrest him the moment he steps foot on the like what a crazy thing like he can get out in the balcony and wave to people and get a slight amount of vitamin d and then he has to go back inside and he's fucking trapped snowden is hanging out with putin in russia which is just bizarre to me so strange I watched a bizarre Putin video today. Which Putin video did it's you watch? Putin, they're analyzing his gait, the way he walks. This is so creepy. Like, they, why don't they just admit that they like have a crush on him and want to have a sleepover? That is so <laughs> weird. I mean, <laughs> well, it's because um, he has a very specific way of walking that's indicative of someone who has military training. It's called the gunslinger's gait. <laughs> is that did did they make that term up themselves? I guess they probably did. But uh, what he does is he swings his left arm, but not his right, so he could pull his gun out really quickly. That's the idea. But what's really bizarre about the video is I didn't know how, like, opulent wherever he is 
what palace or whatever the fuck it is like they have these fucking enormous like here it is look at these enormous gold doors <laughs> like let's play it let's play it jamie so you can watch this like if you watch as he walks if you notice his left arm swings notably while his right arm stays relatively still in comparison like a huge contrast and he always does this and that's so that he could shoot you in the fucking head quicker <laughs> I mean, that's it. <laughs> or, else, or else someone finds out there's an untreated rotator cuff injury, one or the right. other. <laughs> that's true, right? We're just like looking way too into it. But apparently it's really common amongst these guys in the Russian military that uh, get that move into uh, some form of political power. But what's, what's kind of creepiest about it, back it up to the beginning again, Jamie, please. Um, what's creepiest about it is look at those fucking doors. Like, what is that? Like, what are those goddamn doors? Look at all that gold. Everything's gold. I mean, I guess that's the vestiges of being an imperial power where people used to collect Fabergé eggs. Yeah, he is. I mean, he is one of the most open dictators that, that you can see in modern society, which is supposed to be some sort of a democracy. I'm not entirely familiar with how the Russians run their political system, but <clears throat> I know that he was out and then he was, you know, he put some other guy in some sort of a puppet position and now he's back running the whole show. But it's, it's, he's a weird case, man. I don't know how he manages it. It seems like guys like that, someone always wants to kill them and just, it always falls apart, but he's managed to keep it together for a long, long, long time. No, he is. I mean, I can't say I'm like super familiar with Russian politics, so I could I might be talking bullshit. But I mean, he you know, he was the ex head of the KGB. Like he seems yeah. incredibly versed in spying on people and killing people who are threats and maintaining his position at all costs. Yeah, he doesn't just kill him. He kills him like openly. Yeah, he has them gunned down in front of their girlfriends and stuff yeah. like that. Like he's just it's just a massive terror tactic. There was that one guy that was, yeah, he was walking with his girlfriend and his thought was that he had become so famous from criticizing him that Putin couldn't kill him because if he did, it would be so obvious. Nope. No, he doesn't care. I mean, I always think about, um, there is a very respected uh, journalist whose name, last name I won't pronounce because I'll, I'll butcher it. But um, yeah, she was also just like gunned down for criticizing him. Yeah, well, that's kind of happened sort or it's a bit theoret theoretically at least in other places but one of, one of the weird ones in America was that Michael Hastings guy that yeah. guy that's a that's still that one really freaks me out to this day because if you don't know the story Michael Hastings was in a, there's actually a TED talk um, that's available right now it's um, um, a podcast called the TED radio hour which I listen to all the time that had um, one episode called Disruptive Leadership, but it actually focused on this general, General McAllister. And they were kind of sympathetic to him in this, in this TED Talk because uh, the idea was that he did a real leadership thing by stepping down. And what, what it was was Michael Hastings had gotten embedded in this military organization where they were overseas, and when the volcano erupted... Remember that volcano in Iceland? Yeah. It erupted and it's, it fucked up all the flights out of Europe. And uh, you couldn't fly from that part of the world to this part of the world. So uh, he got stuck. It was supposed to be a short trip and he got stuck over there for a month. And as he got closer and closer to these people, they got more and more relaxed and they started telling jokes that were inappropriate about like Al Gore and 
or Joseph Biden. And um, along the lines, uh, this this guy, Michael Hastings, formulated this article, published it in Rolling Stone, and um, it became this sort of a national scandal. And I believe his name is McAllister, right? Is that his name? He, um, he was forced to step down. And that's what the whole focus of this TED Radio Hour was about, was this guy um, taking a leadership position, a leadership point of view by deciding that his position was not as important as the cause itself, and he was just going to step down because he had created this environment where it was too much controversy. And he was upset that um, President Obama didn't ask him to stay, but it is what it is, and that's it. But what they don't say in this thing was this Michael Hastings guy who was in this recording, who was talking about what it was like when he was there, and he committed suicide in one of the strangest, most controversial ways ever. He I mean, I don't think it was a suicide. I think it was an accident. Well, some people think it was a suicide. Some people think it was an accident. And the the black helicopter crew thinks that he was murdered. And that what they did is they took over the electronics in his Mercedes and they forced his car to drive right into a tree at 120 miles an hour with no brakes and explode. And I mean, there's all this crazy all these crazy conspiracy theories that are attached to it that say that engines don't go flying from a car like that unless there's a bomb involved and you know like why would this guy do this and it is pretty pretty trippy stuff and then there was claims that there was crystal meth in his system and then he was you know high on drugs and he had a problem with drugs in the past but then the counter to that was people were like well no he's probably doing Adderall which a lot of writers do because it helps yeah, him write yeah it's like the New York drug everyone's on Adderall in New York is I'm, it yeah yeah I mean I I know a lot of people who are very close to to Michael Hastings and um I will say the people that I know that are very close to him think it was a tragic accident. Um, they, he just happened to be going 120 miles an hour on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, I mean that's 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 for the people I know that you know. They never hit his brakes. I, I can't I can't debate it, but right. that's that's just what I've heard from pe from people who I'm very close to who are close yeah, to him. I would say that too. If I was close to that dude, I knew I was on some sort of a list. If you're close to that guy, you know you got to be on a list. Right? Oh my God! Well, I mean probably like. If you're an investigative journalist doing a lot of stuff in Iraq and Somalia, you're probably on a list. You talking about yourself? Uh, I haven't done Somalia stuff. Um, and I, <laughs> no, I mean, but like a lot of his friends were investigative journalists. Oh, I mean, yeah. I'm sure everybody's. I'm, a, I'm probably on the list. Probably yeah. on the list for having you right here. Dude. No, you Dude. Can't. <laughs> I'm in California. I don't know. I'm, I'm adopting adopting the, uh, the native dialect. I, I, I'm sure we're all on lists because how could you yeah. be interesting if you're not on a list? That's true. It's sort of like a badge of courage. To be on some sort of a list. Depends on what list, though, you know? But, uh, yeah, it's a weird world we live in right now. I think it's, uh, it's, there's a, a temporary bridge right now that's going on where, whether it's the NSA, you know, fill in the blank with whatever name of whatever organization that's supposedly watching over us. But they have a certain amount of power to look into people that we don't have yet. That's temporary. It, there's going to come a time where this electronic barrier that we have in between each other, it's all going to dissolve. And everyone's going to have the same sort of power to spy on everybody that the NSA has. And we're just going to have to accept it. It's going to be very strange. It's going to be like we're all camping. Oh, God. It's going to be a horrifying <laughs> world. We already know too much about each other. We do, right? Was that a concern when you were writing this book? Because you, you um, empty yourself out in this book. I mean, you talk about 
sexual liaisons and you know relationships and friendships and things gone wrong and was did you when you were writing this did you ever say man I mean maybe I don't want everybody to know these things I had a few things that were like that usually with actually with friendships but ultimately I, I thought that it was more important to be honest though the one thing that I did do was I felt like it would have been really unfair if I had taken kind of you know, personal moments I had with someone like 15 years ago and just like put them in a book and thus on that person's Google results without asking them. So while I uh, tried to be pretty merciless with myself, with people who I'm still friends with, I got their approval on what I wrote about them. Oh, that's really cool. <clears throat> that's that's really important. That's That would be a real good way to destroy a friendship. You started telling crazy intimate stories about someone yeah just like, hey. just not cool like it's not it's not fair you know so and I know that like a lot of people disagree with that and they're like they're my memories but I don't know I don't think it's right especially if you're kind of the more famous one it's it, not cool yeah well saying they're my memories like but if you share a moment with someone I, I, I think it's kind of a group memory or at least a group moment yeah it's kind of kind of collectively owned and I, I, I ran them by my parents also that's got to be weird that was the most terrifying thing. And there is the, because I ran the parts about my parents by them, but then they hadn't read the whole book. And I had this really terrifying thing when the book came out where I was like, oh my God, what are they going to think? And I mean, I love my parents. I have a really supportive relationship. I couldn't ask for like you know, two cooler people on earth, you know, to be my parents. But still, you're always scared, right? It's, it's scary to show yourself like that but but they liked it they liked it mostly so i'm very happy about that well you must have really open-minded parents what, I do. Do you, what do your parents do my mom uh, she used to be an illustrator and now she's mostly retired she works kind of as a babysitter slash cat sitter now <laughs> and uh, my dad uh my dad's an academic oh that's cool well so yeah you see you obviously have some intelligent open-minded parents so they've got to be really proud of you because this is excellent stuff thank you so much yeah they they really are and um it was cool because I got to talk about how both of them influenced me so much in their totally, totally different ways. Like my mom is an amazing artist. She she draws so beautifully and she draws kind of like me if I was a less bitter and jagged person. <laughs> like like she draws like the sweet me. And I was able to say like this is how my mom taught me how to draw. You know, this is how she inspired me. You got some great people that uh, reviewed this too, man. You got Matt Taibbi to review this. Pat Oswald reviewed this. I mean, this is really fucking impressive stuff. Thank you. Yeah, Matt. Matt's awesome. He actually uh, interviewed me for um, my book launch in New York, and I grew up reading Matt. You know, I mm -hmm. was reading like The Exile when I was eighteen, and I I love his stuff in New York Press. And what I love about Matt's work is that. A lot of journalists, like they're like these really like narrow professional people that are very, very serious. And Matt was like this total wild man when he was young. And now he does this incredible investigative journalism on finance and politics. But he still writes like a real person. And he still writes in that kind of Hunter S. Thompson tone. That's exactly how I was, was going to describe it. <clears throat> like a lucid Hunter S. Thompson. Exactly. Like less drug-addled. Yeah, yeah. Best of Hunter S. Thompson and less narcissistic a bit. Oh, no, much less narcissistic now. But it was so influential to me because I was like, wow, you can totally be this badass investigative journalist. And you could also be this guy who, when he was young, was having these crazy, often criminal adventures in like the 
aftermath of the Soviet Union falling. Those two things were not incompatible at all. I, I always like people like that who have lives that are really, really diverse. Yeah, he, that's a, a really good way of describing him, too, because we, we do have this idea that if you're going to be an investigative journalist, that your piece has to be sort of homogenized and that it's going to the, the facts take precedent over the flavor of the prose and his has a lot of flavor there's a lot of there's a lot of personality in distributing those facts but it doesn't get in the way of the facts oh god no no he's it, it's it's such like a master class <clears throat> on how to do it and in fact it's really serves the facts because especially when he's writing about financial journalism i mean finance can be so boring and so complicated that it can really be over most people's heads and if you write it completely without flavor, most people will never even be able to sink into it at all. Yeah, he's the guy that I got most of my information about the financial collapse about. And one of the things that disturbed me the most was how little reaction, like publicly, his articles caused. Like, I thought, like, it would be one of those things where everyone would be sharing it. It would go, it would be on the front page of the New York Times. Uh, on Today on CNN, Matt Taibbi, uncover, and everybody would be like, oh, look at the facts. This is crazy. But meanwhile, it was like this terrible, terrible scenario where w the whole system was hijacked by these fucking criminals. And no one seemed to care. It just, I have bills to pay. I have to keep going. I have a spin class at 9 o'clock. I can't be paying. And no one, no one really gave it the attention, or I shouldn't say no one, but not publicly, nationally. It didn't get nearly the attention that it deserved. And he wrote a series of them. And, you know, some of them I was like, this guy's going to get fucking killed. Like, these were, these were intense allegations. And it's, it, and backed up all of it backed up by facts and really well written and it's just like almost like it's too much for people like they're just like oh. it's like complicated it deals with a lot of things that are kind of boring very intellectually demanding not necessarily partisan and i think for a lot of people they're like what are you gonna do yeah it bothers me that he's not fa more famous it bothers me i think I hope with the next book he, he will be because I, I think he's like one of the best journalists working in America. Now. He is, yeah, I agree. I agree. He's he's amazing. He's amazing. Now you, how much time do you spend doing all this? You do a lot of journalism. I mean, you you do a lot of crazy shit. You go to like really nutty, sort of dangerous places. I've been to a few. Yeah. What is like the most disturbing place that you've been to? So the most dangerous place I went to was uh, last summer when I went into Syria for a day, and Whoa. that was. Um, Basically, and the reason when I talk about how dangerous it was, the fact that I, I wouldn't even spend the night there shows probably something about my tolerance levels. But at that time, this coalition of Islamist groups had just kicked ISIS out of this border town called Azaz. And you could take a bus over to the Turkish border and then you could cross. And I did that with a war journalist friend of mine, and I spent a day with the Islamic Front driving around Azaz. And one of the things um, that was happening then was it was before uh, James Foley was murdered, but we all knew that there were lots and lots of kidnappings there. And at that point, we thought it was just for ransom and stuff, but still, you know, kidnapping is a terrible, terrible thing. And when um, the scariest thing that ever happened to me as a journalist was we're with these three uh, young uh, media activists slash fighter guys, really cool dudes. I mean, I liked them. And we're in this car, we're driving around Azaz, and the car slows to a halt, it just breaks down. And 
Patrick, the guy I'm with, immediately thinks it's a setup for kidnapping to, you know, get pe- get us out of the car. Because that's one way that you can set things up for kidnappings. And um, the guys didn't have their guns. And so we had to walk to the media office um, through Azaz. And Azaz at that point looked like something out of Mad Max. Like it was just no women on the street, just men. A lot of AKs. Uh, even if a guy didn't have an AK, like they'd be holding like sticks and stuff. Um, there were... Well, there was a like what I can only describe as like a gun bodega, which is fascinating because it sold all these different guns. Like it might so- sell like a beautiful antique, you know, pearl inlaid revolver that like someone's dad had, but then also grenades and stuff. And grenades, grenades, yeah, because you know, in case someone tried to kidnap you, you would have a grenade. have a fucking. You're coming with me, bitch. Yeah, Boom. basically, <laughs> basically, yeah. So, you know, we're walking through this town and. Um, that was, I think, the scariest thing that I, I ever did in my life. But it all turned out fine. And we got to the media office, which it was a government building that they, that these young men had taken over when they kicked out the central government. And um, the director of it had been kidnapped by ISIS. And the young guys are there, like, watching watching soccer because everyone, everyone loves soccer there. And it was just, I don't know, it's like this feeling of being in this place where um, the whole world is both fucking with it and abandoned it both at once, you know, and um, and anything could happen. So that, that was the most dangerous thing I've ever done. Like nothing I've ever done has, was as dangerous as going to Syria. But I think the most uh, personally disturbing thing was um, I was in uh, Gaza uh, six months ago, I guess. And I went to Shujaia, which is this neighborhood that was completely destroyed by Israel during Protective Edge. Like, they bombed it, and then they went in with tanks, and then they went in with bulldozers. Like, so it's, like, flattened. And it's just, like, gone. Like, you know, you, you, you go there, and you're like, this is this is a neighborhood that has been wrecked. And a lot of times when you see houses that have collapsed, you can see all of the stuff of people's lives in it. Like, you're like, oh, there's the cooking pots, and there's the bed, and there's all the stuff that's just trapped in. And then people, because there's a big housing shortage, obviously, in Gaza, were living in these bombed out buildings, you know, where their home was. And, um, you know, with like, no real like services or anything like I saw this, I was walking, I was kind of scrambling through this like building to take pictures. And then I just randomly walked into what I thought was an abandoned room. And there's like an old guy there, you know, hanging out. And, you know, I was like, I'm really sorry to, you know, invade, invade your home. And, I was just just talking to him, but yeah, this he had had like a, a baller, gorgeous home, you know, before this, and now he was just living in you know, a little, like the wreck of one of the rooms. Whoa, wow, it's you know, Mad Max is the way you describe that that city, and th- that uh, sort of apocalyptic scenario is something that we all worry could happen to us, to anything. So, but one of the things that I always try to remember is that the apocalypse is already here. It's just not here. Yeah. If you go there, it's here. Like, in in Gaza, it's there. That's the apocalypse. I mean, it's there. I mean, it might as well be in that guy's house. I mean, you are living like Mad Max. Those people in that, what's the name of the city again? Azaz. Azaz. And Azaz, I mean, that is what everyone's terrified of. What everyone's terrified of is a reality where you walk down the street and everyone's carrying military weapons and you're just, it's chaos. And there's, it's fairly lawless. Yeah, I mean, a lot of 
the refugee camps that I saw, it's not that they were lawless. I, I would never describe them as that. But just in the sense of the extreme uh, falling in your life situation, there was a guy I met when I was in Iraqi Kurdistan uh, last time. I was with Doctors That Borders there. And he, you know, he was this, like, super smart dude. Like, he was Kurdish, which meant that he was really discriminated against. But he scored so high on his math exams, he was able to go to, like, an elite engineering school and get an aeronautics degree. And, you know, be, he's an aeronautics engineer. And, like, th this is a dude that would, you know, be, be on the path to, like, having an awesome job. And now, like, he's living in a tent with his, like, whole family and his mom and everything. And, you know, you never expect that when you're living in, like, an awesome city, like Aleppo that he was living in. And then you're – and then the war comes and there's bombings and – you're, you're driven out of your home and you're so displaced that eventually you're forced to you know be living in this tent with no end in sight and you're not allowed to like ever improve your circumstances because you have the wrong passport jesus christ it's hard for anybody living in america to wrap their head around what it would be like to be there and be stuck in that position it really is i mean so the syrian um, <clears throat> refugee mm. um the syrian refugee thing one thing that i I think perhaps isn't in the media enough is that the people who are coming to Europe right now are the middle class of the country because it's cost over a thousand dollars to pay to pay that um, pay a smuggler to take you over, and every single one of those people could buy a plane ticket and travel like a normal person and not have their kids risk drowning and all of that, but they're banned from it because they're Syrians and the whole like taking the boat and walking from Greece to Germany and having volunteers give out water and sleeping on the streets and like the whole humanitarian disaster is just a function of not letting them buy plane tickets that all that's all it is well there's this big push in america now especially among the republicans to not allow anyone from syria to come into the united states it's crazy like not a single person with the syrian refugee program has ever been arrested for a terrorism offense it's it's like it's nuts it's it's so but they're brown they're so scary they're terrorists oh my god it's I, well, there's got to be like one of them that's an asshole. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there's assholes, but not one of them was arrested for a terrorism offense I ever. I guarantee, if you let like a million Canadians in, you're gonna and they're the nicest people ever. There'd be like some of those guys that are in that that big like riot was in Toronto, yeah, <laughs> smashing cars. Yeah, one, one of them of was them would smashing get a car. Through. Or one of them from the Vancouver uh, hockey riot. Yeah, one of those assholes would make it through. No, it's it's crazy, and it's um, it's really like personally upsetting to me because I've done so much you know, work with, with Syrians over the last few years. And like to see these like amazing people that I know who are so tough and so smart and have endured so much, like being defamed like this. It, mm. I feel almost like someone's shit talking, like my, like my, well, someone is shit talking my friends. You know, it, it makes me angry on um, a personal level, like not just a theoretical one. Well, it's not just, it's, it's so short sighted because if you consider the fact that you're you're talking about an entire group of people that's fleeing a terrible area exactly and you're saying well they've all got to be bad that that's one of the most racist things that you could ever say publicly in 2015 like it's sort of this weird accepted racism and because of the fact that terrorism it, like when you're dealing with Muslims, right, you're dealing with 1.6, is that what it is, billion people? It's like a fifth of the world. Yeah. And so the, the idea is saying, well, these terrorist activities, have been they've been done by Muslims. Why don't we kick all the white people out of America because white people have been responsible for all the mass shootings? I mean, that's more logical than this. It, it's so awful. And, like, the other thing that's, to me, like, particularly, like, moronic is... 
I, I see sometimes in the media, like, why aren't the Muslims condemning the terrorists? Every single group that is actually on the ground, like fighting ISIS with guns, you know. They're Muslims. Yeah, yeah, they're like 90% Muslim or 95% Muslim. I mean, a lot of them are war criminals, too. I'm not saying they're good groups necessarily, (laughs) but they're Muslim. Um, Every single like major Muslim religious leader in the world has condemned ISIS in terms that they wouldn't even use in America. Uh, I mean, it's it's astounding to me. I I think that the only reason anyone would think that Muslims aren't condemning ISIS is because they can't use Google, don't read the news, and have never spoken to a Muslim. Or for the same reason why Matt Taibbi's articles never really got as popular as I thought they should. People just don't have the time or the need. Everything is wonderful. You go to the supermarket, you buy food, it's really easy. You know, you go through the McDonald's drive through your stomach's full, you sit home, you watch Netflix, you're good. Like, you don't need to pay attention to Syria. Fuck those people. Keep them out! <laughs> Donald Trump's gonna keep us safe! And you just drink yourself into a coma, wake up in the morning, do it all over again. Drink some coffee, get out the door, get in your fucking car, do the same shit. As long as you can get to to work. I got bills. As long as you can get to work, you're fine. It's just, the idea of America in the first place was supposed to be a place where people could go, where they didn't like where they were, and they wanted to found, they wanted to establish a, a new life. They wanted to... Look, we're going to take a giant chance. We're going to get in a fucking stupid boat and make it across this giant body of water. We don't even know what it looks like. They didn't have photos back then. That's one of the weirdest things about traveling to America, if you really stop and think about it. It was done when people didn't even have photographs. The first people that came over, if you wanted to picture something, you had to fucking draw it. Right, and that's how crazy these people were. They're like, we, we just, I don't care. I saw a drawing, some pretty trees. We're fucking getting in the boat. Yeah, but they brought their babies and their grandma and shit, and they got in a boat and they came to America because they they had an idea, and that idea was there is a better life here. We can we can make it, and the to deny that to these people because they were born on the wrong patch of dirt. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be checked you shouldn't go through a criminal background check and make sure you're not letting in some mass murderer or not letting in some rapist or some thieves or whatever yeah I mean if there's a way to do that that should be done but the idea that you should never let anybody in that's from Syria it's like God man imagine you're you're cursed just because you were born in the, the shitty patch of dirt that's, yeah, that's exactly what the thinking is. It's like, because you were born here, like, oh, you carry some virus and you have to be quarantined. And man, I'm like, I'm so, I'm so fucking grateful that you're saying this, like, to your audience and with, like, on the massive platform you have. Like, I, I know I sound sappy and shit, but, like, thank you, really. Well, listen, thank you for going over there. If it wasn't for people like you and, and you know, the, the vice people and all these journalists and all these people that go over there and show us in, in video form, like, exactly what's happening and get, get to watch it and see what it's like. You go, oh, this is fucking chaos. Like, this is in the world right now. 2015, while people are watching the Emmys and everybody's on the red carpet smiling, the, the, there's parts of the world that are like a Mad Max movie right now. Or like this refugee camp um, I went to, or it was a, a bunch of refugee camps in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon. Like, people don't know. It gets cold there. Like, kids freeze to death, you know, every winter um, in those camps because it's like you're living under vinyl tarp in the mountains. Jesus Christ. It's it's very strange that w- the world is so uneven, that there are places like the Congo that are like that exist on the same timeline as Park Avenue. 
that there's there's people that have doormen that dress up like the guys that were holding open the door for Putin, you know, and you, you hop into Uber limousines and you travel around the city, you know, with the the right fragrances in the in the car, and it's it's a, a, we live in really strange times because I think the disparity that existed that it's kind of always existed. There's always been disparity. There's always been you know the haves and the have-nots, and in some places it's on a much more grand scale, but it's never been so obvious. Especially because so many people are online now. Like, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people maybe don't realize, especially in the Middle East, like how internet connected people are. When I was in Domiz, which is this uh, refugee, it was the refugee camp in Iraq that I that I was at. One of the most popular stores was the store that was selling personal Wi-Fi hotspots. And you'd have people that were living in, like, a tent, you know, with tarp and, like, nothing. But they'd have, like, a Wi-Fi hotspot. And that's because they had a family that was scattered all around the world. And the only way to communicate them with them was with WhatsApp or with texting services like this or with Skype. And so, like, the most important thing you were going to get was Internet access so that you could, like, talk to your brother that was in one country and your daughter that was in another. Like, that was more important than anything. Your, you said daughter. I heard your New York oh, came out. Oh, fuck. It's coming out. Man, I tried so hard. <laughs> I excited. It came out. You always sound the, like my uncle. Way. Yeah, man. No, I, yeah, it's true. It's true. I'm from Queens originally. Well, you know what's kind of crazy is I guarantee you there's it a high possibility that someone in one of those camps is listening to you right now. Oh, absolutely. On this podcast that have downloaded it from the internet. No, it's, absol- it's absolutely true. Um, I wonder... I feel like if you're like if someone who's listening is listening, you know, from a camp or is listening, you know, in a refugee situation, like I man, how cool would it be to get someone like that on your show as a guest if there is like a way with Skype or something? That'd be amazing. I have to clear it with Donald Trump. Make is, sure he thinks it's he, okay. Is it, are, are, are Syrian voices allowed into the country or would that cause ISIS? Does ISIS come from Most Syrian voices? Likely it's a disease of the mind. Uh, he wants to stop the internet to the Middle East. Have you heard this? This is the latest Donald Trump thing. I had a signing last night, so I unfortunately I missed the intellectual glory that was the Republican debate. So fill me in on this. <laughs> I didn't see it, but uh, he was talking about this, um, that one of the things that they would do or he would do is knock off the internet to certain parts of the Middle East. Uh, why? Like, how's that? What, well, because what the that's how they're plotting against us, Molly Crabapple, while you sit in your wonderful <laughs> New York apartment writing books about sex. <laughs> the, ter- the terrorists. The terrorists are winning. Oh, yeah. God. I mean, does, so in ISIS territories that those fuckers are occupying, they got rid of private Internet access in people's homes because they're really scared of the Internet, too. They are super scared because there are all these citizen activists and journalists that are revealing shit about them on the internet right now like if you're in Raqqa the only way to even get online is to be on these internet cafes that are kind of run by dudes with ISIS connections whoa and and um that's because ISIS is also really fucking scared of the internet they really don't like it really yeah why is that well because a lot of Syrians living and Iraqis living in their territories fucking hate them and they give intel on them to um foreign journalists that's fascinating so the internet acts as a way that they communicate and establish plans but it also acts as something that's plotting against them exactly same as the internet does it everywhere else yeah i mean it's just communication it's just people yeah when you're a group of cunts that the whole world hates and you're online guarantee you're going to get some haters (laughs) yeah i mean there's a there's one group of um 
journalists uh, there that's became very famous that's called Braca is being silently slaughtered that I mean they did tons of work documenting ISIS shit and ISIS I mean beheaded two of their members that that were in Turkey and there are plenty of other citizen journalists there and yeah ISIS is dead scared of normal of normal people who are living under their fucking occupation using the internet they hate it you know another thing they're scared of they're scared of being killed by women so that's kind of I I I think I think this is my theory that um the Kurdish they won't go to heaven if a Kurdish girl kills them thing I think like one person said that and then they saw how much play got in the media and they were like oh man this is good pr let's keep let's keep milking this one you think so i think so yeah does it make sense ideologically like within their religion is that something that they believe in if you get killed by a woman you don't get all the virgins no i think that's bullshit i think that maybe i think maybe there's like a macho thing you know where they're like oh fuck a girl you know girl shot my leg but i it's not a theological thing damn it Seems so good though. I know, really. It's, it's, it seems it seems sweet. I was just thinking of like some crazy Amazon scenario, <laughs> just like armies of chicks with guns chasing ISIS, and they just run away because they're scared of being killed by chicks. I mean, like the the women who are fighting ISIS, like in the YPJ, are you know ferocious soldiers, but they're, they're ISIS is scared of getting they're scared of getting killed by soldiers. If we really allocate, our, if that was true though, and we really allocated our resources correctly. I think there's probably enough really mean bitches in the world we could put together a hell of a fucking army. I think so, I think so too, with tons of motivation. <laughs> could you imagine just jet, jets and bombers and, and missiles all being piloted by women? Like, that's it. Only women. Only women going after ISIS because if they get killed by these women, they're fucked and they don't get to go to heaven. I think I think you'd have to do, like, a more... I think that the bombings aren't doing shit against ISIS. I think the... Um, what. YPG is doing is, you know, I think it'd have to be more on the ground thing. On the yeah. ground, yeah. yeah. Well, especially in Afghanistan, right? This, this, that's one of the things that people have always had a problem with invading Afghanistan. It's essentially a series of mountain ranges occupied by warlords. There's not like, there's it's not a lot of access. It's not so easy to get to. Well, the thing with ISIS is what they do is they, I mean, they move in, you know, they occupy cities, like a military occupation. They try to you know, marry people and build families, and they try to insert themselves as much as possible into the fabric of a city. And that's part, in part, it's them making it so that if if you you know bombed Raqqa, you would be murdering hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians who were just too poor to get out. So they do it strategically, yeah. sort of embed themselves as a human shield. Yeah, exactly. And like there are so, I mean, the majority of Raqqa is they're like farmers who couldn't afford to get out because it's expensive to even get out of Syria. What a mess. What a crazy, chaotic, psychotic mess. It's really bizarre that, remember that Obama speech that he had on television, was it a year or so ago, where he was talking about eminent military action against Syria and the whole country went, what? Are you fucking crazy? And then it just, it just stopped. Literally, like silence. Like you didn't hear anything more about it. They just completely backed off just because Republicans and Democrats, everyone was like, are you out of your fucking mind? Like, look what happened in Iraq. Look what happened in Afghanistan. Look at the, the massive negative reaction the American public has had to all these military actions. You're going to start up a new one on, in Syria? For what reason? Because somebody got gassed? Because they gassed people? Like, what do you, what do, what's going on that we need to sacrifice American lives over there? Exactly. Like, what's the cause of all this? I mean, what's really sort of so tragic about Syria is that um, Obama, um, this, this is me saying an opinion that's not necessarily mine, but it's the opinion of, that I've gotten from speaking to refugees. It, um, 
a lot of people, I think, felt very led on by what Obama said, and they felt like, oh, there's going to be, you know, some support or, I don't know, some action against Assad. Because, I mean, whatever one thinks about American intervention or non-intervention, what Assad did is a crime against humanity on a massive scale. What, what, whatever we think you think we should have done, what he did was fucking horrific. And anyone who is in Syria and, you know, who was at the receiving end of that would very often want someone else to intervene. Why don't you ex- explain to people what he did do? He uh, ran like an industrial scale um, arrest, uh, torture, killing program. He does something called barrel bombings, which are taking like basically like dumpsters full of TNT and shrapnel and dropping them on populated areas. He targets schools, targets hospitals, uh, destroyed uh, large swaths of Aleppo. And this isn't this isn't me saying um, this isn't me saying that I think the U.S. should have intervened because I I I still don't know, but I I'm very against the U.S. intervening in general and anything because I think we always fuck it up. But he also factually did do those things. It's just hard to imagine that someone's capable of doing shit like that. It's just where people can get to. Where people can get to in their minds that that allows them to do shit like that. I think what it was was his one of the things that was quite influential was his father uh, put down a sort of incipient insurgency opposition thing uh, in a city called Hama by killing twenty thousand people and like bombing the fuck out of the city and it, it put put it down and I think that perhaps in his mind he thought that he could do the same when there was an uprising against him, but obviously that, you know, wasn't what happened. Well, that's, um, I mean, that's the story of Saddam Hussein and his sons as well. Imagine being the son of a, an evil, brutal dictator. Yeah, and you're just like, well, Ugh. those sons always end up like these fucking Nero figures, don't exactly, they? I mean, yeah. it's like the father is very often like a thuggish military guy. Mm-hmm. And, and then the son is this princeling who always got whatever he wanted in his life and that's when it gets so so weird you see it with like kim jong-il also mm-hmm. exactly yeah and uday and kusei is that what his name yeah those motherfuckers Oof. god i read some horrible stories about what they would do they would find women that were getting married and they would take them from their husband rape them and then feed them to dogs they had dogs that they had in their basement that they just didn't feed and they would throw people that they didn't like to their dogs and the dogs would tear them apart Whoa, and then they would watch, of course. But the, the the fact that a person can get to that place, that a person can get to that place where they, it, it, we're, it, in the weirdest way, we're flexible in a beautiful way. You know, we you can see someone who can create beautiful songs and art, and they can touch people with their words and their thoughts and their deeds, and you know, they can they can be something inspirational and amazing. But we're also flexible in this horrific way where they could play upon the worst fears and the worst the, the, the worst emotions that people are capable of manifesting. And they could just just attack and torture and maim and brutalize and murder. And, and they could do it wantonly and do it with no for no real reason. They could do it sadistically for fun, for recreation. The fact that that that's the same beast it's just they're human beings and it's like i mean there could obviously be some anomalies in the brain itself but essentially a good portion of what makes a person who they are is 
their environment and their life experiences and the nurturing and like how they're raised and what they're exposed to. And we get, we're so flexible and pliable because we want to survive that we're capable the same species during the same time period. We're not talking about like cave people that cannibalized because they didn't have books. They didn't understand it was bad and they had invented language yet. No, we're talking about people with the internet they're capable of doing these horrific things. But at the same time, there's someone like, you know, I mean, you can fill in the blank. There's a lot of beautiful people out there that do things. But my friend Justin Wren, who's um, from these photos over here, who goes to the Congo. And he lives with the pygmies for six months a year. And he, he, and he builds wells for them. And he gets malaria and almost dies. And, you know, he's an American from Texas. He just went over there and saw how incredible these people were, and he dedicates his life to it. He's like, to me, he's like one of my favorite people because he's like this beautiful manifestation of like experiencing like friendship and love from these people and then just becoming incredibly dedicated to try to take care of them. But these people exist at the same time. It's just, it's so hard to understand. Like a parrot is a fucking parrot. You know, some parrots you can tame and they'll eat uh, peanuts out of your hand, and other ones they live in the trees. But they're fucking parrots. And we're like everything all at once. Oh, we're so we're so weird. We're so weird. You know. I mean, I'm a fan of people. Don't get me wrong. But <laughs> you're you're pro people. I'm a huge fan of people. I I love people. I think we're amazing, but we're also horrible. You know, it's it's what we're capable of is so strange. Because like, you know, like you or I are not capable of those things. So for us to see that, like, what we consider a horrible person in America is like. Someone who's uh, says something horrible on you know on Twitter about race or something like that, or someone who's uh, you know disparaging about President Obama or you know it's like it's so minor in a lot of ways. What we shame people for here, you know, you didn't use the correct gender pronoun, you piece of shit. You know, meanwhile there's terrible, terrible things that are going on at the same part of the world in the same time in other parts of the world. I mean, I, I don't believe in a race to the bottom. It shouldn't be like, no. well, you haven't like thrown someone to the dog, so you're cool, you know? <laughs> no, like, no, it's definitely not that. No, no but I, I, yeah. I, I definitely, I, I definitely hear where you're coming from. Hmm. It is funny, right? You can always look at like Saddam Hussein's kids and you're like, I'm fine. Be like, all I did was punch a baby. I didn't have dogs <laughs> eat it. Why do you gotta shame me for my baby punching? <laughs> shaming. Shaming is a new thing, right? When did shaming come around? I mean, I public feel shaming, like the term. Don't you feel like public shaming is sort of an old American tradition? We have a book called The Scarlet Letter about public shaming. Yeah, but not as a phrase, you know, like yeah. fat shaming, you know. You mean when it, when it became... Um... Yeah, slut shaming. Like these terms are very new. These are like, these are like these new concepts. I mean, I think that they're, they're new coinages to uh, describe, to describe um, you know, old behavior. And the truth is, I, I do think people should be criticized for like... I don't know. I feel like if you're going on Twitter and you're writing, you're a dumb whore to random women, like, mm -hmm. that is jerk-ass behavior. And people should tell you that you're being a fucking jerk for it. Unless she's <laughs> really into it. That's her thing. <laughs> if, she's, if she's previously expressed, uh, yeah. she's previously expressed a uh, like, desire for that. Yeah, they have, like, an established relationship. You're a dumb whore. Oh, you fucker. Get over here. And like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, pre previous consent. But, you know, to, ra to random, random women who don't have that in their Twitter bio, that that's what they're into. <laughs> I think, like, you were being a jerk-ass. And if someone is like... Fuck you! Stop calling random women whores on Twitter. Oh yeah, I, you know I think that I think that's fine. I think that what we were talking about before about having no um, that one day we're going to come a time where there's no boundaries between people. I'm I'm really absolutely convinced of this. Like I've I've uh, 
I've had these weird um, trips in the sen sensory deprivation tank where I've, I've sort of seen this take place, this slow acceptance of what is the ultimate inevitable reality. And it, it, it kind of freaks me out sometimes. I have to get out of the tank because I just can't handle it. Because I, I really think, I think like life as a person, we have this idea that we're going to put our shell on and we're good. I got my shell on. Yeah. But there's going to be no shells. It's, it's, it, we're going to ha just have to somehow or another. Like, you know how you have friends? Like, I have friends that uh, I'm almost too close to them. I know everything they do. You know, like, what'd you do? Ah, oh, you fucker. Why'd you do that? Oh, my God. What are you doing? Ah, <laughs> oh, I just fucking lost my mind. And, but you know everything. Like, we're going to know that about everybody. It's just a matter of time. But the thing is, I don't think it's going to make us nicer to each other or make us like each other better. I think that one of the things that Twitter has done, I mean, tw I love Twitter. Like, I'm addicted to Twitter. I love it. I think it's really cool. But in addition to having us speak to all sorts of amazing people that we never would have spoken to before, it also, like, really uh, revealed what other people were thinking and made us, like, really dislike them for it. <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also the anonymity, the ability to reach out to Molly and just say some mean shit anonymously. You know, you're just this little egg. I'm a little egg. You know, that's all your, your icon is. And, you know, you have a, a series of letters that represent your egg. And then you're like, fuck you, Molly Crabapple. <laughs> you fucking bitch. I read your bullshit. I don't even believe that's how it went down. I think you're a fucking attention whore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you read that. You're like, ow. You know, you've... Fucking anonymous person is searing my soul with your hate. I haven't. I mean, I don't like. I I get a lot of like, as I'm, as I'm sure you do. I think. Okay, so this is the thing. Sometimes the thing that helps me put it in perspective is I got seventy thousand Twitter followers, and I think if I ever had any other grouping, like any real life grouping of seventy thousand people, like what would be the jackass ratio that I would expect in that? It's always one in a hundred. That's yeah. my thought. My thought is it's one. It's the real one percent that we should be concerned with. The jackass one percent. Yeah, the mean people. Yeah. Because I think they're the so they're so calm. Like the the idea of the one percent being like the real problem in America, being the successful people. I think if you got the one percent of all the successful people together, only one percent of them would be evil cunts. I, I really believe that. I think one percent across. Like I think you keep going with the one percent. Like how many of those? Well, out of those people that are evil, how many of them are true sociopaths? Probably one percent of them too. Like it keeps going. But if you have three hundred million people, you're dealing with three million assholes. Like if there's a hundred people, one of them's gonna suck. And if you have three hundred million, you have three million people that suck. And if they all get a hold of your Twitter account, you're gonna think the world has ended. You're going to think, my God, and you won't see the other 99. You won't see them because the hateful words of the one will just be overwhelming. And you, every now and then, Molly, your book's amazing. Like, you're like, it's all tweet. a lie. It's all a lie. Just cling to this. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll try to find it. I mean, I've watched people in scan. Like I had, like we were talking about Lance Armstrong. And I looked at the mentions that Lance Armstrong gets on Twitter. Like anything he writes, like anything he writes. Like had a great time, you know, uh, doing this, uh, this race. Was it as good a time as when you're running away from drug tests? Oh, fuck's like, sake. Like they, they can't help it. It's like they, people just love to dig. They just love to fucking reach out of that rib cage and pull out your heart. Ah! They can't help it. They know they can. And it's also a new ability that human beings have sort of cultivated over the last couple decades. It really didn't exist before. Well, before, like, you would have had to have, like, 
ridden a letter, mm -hmm. left your mom's basement, walked all the way down to the block with it's all these other humans. It's always your mom's humans. basement. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, why, why don't I say, like, your dad's basement, your girlfriend's basement? There's so many other basements these people could be in. Like, why do I have to put them all in their mom's basement? Because it's somehow or another for a man the most pathetic thing. Like, Mom, I'm down here, Mom, stop yelling. I'm down here telling people they're wrong on the internet. I mean, you're typing up a fucking storm and trying to hurt Lance Armstrong's <laughs> feelings. Mm -hmm. You're cycling, fucking lying. Yeah, I, I like I like that. That was that was a that was a good uh, a good personification of that. <laughs> it's, what it, it's like this feeling of just wanting to just somehow or another get a reaction, and it's all losers. That's unfortunate. I mean, I hate to say that to those people right now. Like, no, no, I'm a I'm a winner, and I I I, I think you just what he did was dishonorable. Okay, well then you might think it. But if you actually are sitting around trying to attack him, I guarantee you that is energy and focus that you could have best spent on your own life. 100%. Or like maybe if you're just like a mean critical person who is a winner, you could have written a really great essay about like mm. juicing in the sport that like yes. really took him down. And, and, and then you could have challenged your like meanness in a positive and winning direction. But if you really looked at the essay Honestly, you'd have to take down the whole sport itself. I mean, you really wouldn't. If you want to take down Lance Armstrong, you'd have to take him down by his individual act, actions in defending his actions in the sport. Yeah. That, that's, that's, he admits that. He, he's pretty open about the fact that he fucked up and that he made some pretty horrible choices. That's it. The, the sport itself, like if you really wanted to write an essay, you'd write, well, what the fuck, a bunch of steroid using bike riders. That's what you got. Yeah, and you'd write like probably about the economic impetus and how all the ways that like mm -hmm. top people were able to kind of condone it, but then get out with their hands clean. And you'd write something like that really channeled your meanness into a positive direction that really tore shit down. Yeah, that's a weird thing about blogs too, though. There's a lot of people, I've, I've read some really mean blogs that people write about folks. And I'm like, what's interesting about this is like, Blogs are not a conversation. It's like you're, you have this uh, attack, this focused attack of, of an individual. But if that individual was there and they could respond to this and you could have a communication, it would be a different thing. Like what it is, is like uh, it's like a, a message tied to the claw of a raven that you're sending out. Like it's, it's, so, it's such a one-way thing. It's, it's, not, it's not really an effective way to communicate because you're not really trying to communicate what you're trying to do is hurt somebody like when you see attack blogs I mean, oh, they're the worst yeah, yeah. but there's, there's some that deserve it like if you could write an expose on someone who runs some horrible business that is using slave labor or fill in the blank on some terrible scenario that you could expose yeah I mean the, the, the world should see it like okay here Matt Taibbi's exposes on the financial collapse brilliant the, brilliant yeah. perfect and you know that those are real legitimate and important but I've read some things that people have written are just about like random celebrities or you know like you're just like why why are you that invested in Tyler Swift like how do you have so much opinion I think it's Taylor oh, fuck I'm, I, I don't, I'm, a, I'm a fucking dork I don't know anything well I'm a fucking dork too haters gonna hate 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 that fucking song I like that song goddamn because I have daughters and I have a wife that goddamn song is playing all the time. They play it in the car when I'm with them. I'm like, that's okay, you can, you can play that one. I like that one. Cool. That's awesome. <laughs> but I'm embarrassed that I like it. No, no, it just it, it shows like diverse musical tastes. That's all. Mm, I definitely have that. Sometimes too diverse, you know. But um, I don't know how we got into that. But it's like, yeah, like mean takedowns of like some singer. Like, come on. Really? Is this 
terrible person really inf affecting your life in some strange way. But like the comments that people will make to people, I believe, on Twitter and Facebook, all these, well, Facebook is like slightly less anonymous, but all these anonymous methods of communicating, they're going to dissolve slowly but surely the boundaries between people. It's not just going to be the NSA that can find out exactly what you're doing and who's saying what to who. It's going to be the whole fucking world. Everyone's going to be able to, to do that. And it's going to be very, very weird. But very weird. The other thing is, like, people will find out the people who are doing that. I remember there was this, like, asshole who made a bunch of Twitter accounts to um, write that women who worked in tech, but then just random women he didn't like were cunts. And he really fixated on this one woman who is a programmer at Tor, which is an anonymous web browser. And he, like, made seven Twitter accounts at one point to, like, tell her she was a cunt. <laughs> and so finally she was like, she was like this... This has gone on long enough. And um, when he was visiting her website, uh, presumably to find more proof that she was a cunt, she got his IP address, tracked down where he worked, and posted his name in his workplace. Mm. And with the line that was like, it's classic, she wrote, should have used tour, fucko. And, <laughs> and I was like, you know, if you went up to a bunch of women, or if you went up to a bunch of women at bars and just screamed like cunt in their face, like eventually either them or their boyfriend or someone around was going to hit you. But because you were doing this online, you thought like, wow, I can just go up to people and scream cunt and nothing's ever going to happen. And, some, you know, it did. And there's no one's going to be sympathetic to anyone that's going to get seven Twitter accounts just to call some woman a cunt. It's yeah. Just, no, no one feels bad that he, yeah. that, that he got oh, doxxed. the poor guy got doxxed. Well, he was just expressing himself and exercising his First Amendment rights. No, I think, um, I really think we're, we're maybe a few years away from that just not being around anymore, from it being some strange new world. Well, we're all going to know exactly what I think I, I really believe that it's we're maybe 10 years away from being able to read each other's thoughts. Oh, God, can you imagine? Yeah, it's going to be very strange. But it's, all the romance and things is going to be gone because so much of like so much of like really exciting things in life is like anticipating and not knowing. And then, you know, it's almost like the unwrapping of Christmas presents, like like when someone texts you. Hey, what are you doing? And you're like, yes, it's her. Fuck you. Yeah. You know, like there's that that moment where you didn't know if someone likes you or not. Like what's going on? And then you're going back and forth with each other, or sending each other emails, or you get that phone call out of the blue from someone you didn't know they really were into you. And you're like, yeah. But when you know everyone's thoughts, it's going to be like all the Rome. Ah, oh, you're into me, you fucker. Why, why are you playing? There's going to be no playing cool. There's going to be no... You know that you know you you're when you go to apply for a job you're like well you fucking don't like me so I'll just get out of here like you you think I'm a loser so you're not gonna hire me just, there's not gonna be any illusions so all, a lot of romance is gonna be gone a lot of a lot of the fun of things is not knowing you know we don't like that though <laughs> no I'm an I'm an artist I, I I I like I like the not knowing I like the mystery sometimes so, so it's fun as long as it works out. Obviously, it's worked out for you. You're a young woman. You're already you already have a book published. You have many, 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 many art pieces published. You have journalism things that you've done. It's like it's worked out for you. All this romance, but for some people, this is not happening for them. And they're like, God damn it! I just think it would be better if there was no secrets. But but if you're that person and it wasn't working out for you. Probably if there were no secrets, you would just have the crushing disappointment of realizing either no one was thinking of you or they were thinking bad things about you and it would just make you more unhappy. Maybe. 
But is what we are as human beings currently, is that a static state? And is this a state that we can expect to exist in, in sort of this form, speaking with our mouths, making noises with our faces, interpreting it, interpreting it in our own minds, and, and listening to other people say things and sort of establishing what they're meaning. Is that it? Is that is this going to be forever? This is going to be how human? No, no fucking way. Just like a, a monkey climbed off of a tree and, and you know, and eventually became a person uh, 200 plus thousand years later or whatever the fuck it was. Whatever has led us to improve to become what we are today is a continuous cycle. It's not going to stop. And I think that this idea that what we've got right now, like, oh, this, the romance of not knowing and, you know, it's amazing and it all works out. Well, it's fucking it's temporary. This is a little, when we look back in time, too, the m amount of time that we've spent in this state currently, the internet state, yeah. has been so brief but so transcendent. Absolutely. It, like, the most transcendent thing, I mean, I think as much or more than, like, the printing press. Probably more, my God. One of the like really good articles I was reading about um, the refugee stuff is by this Iraqi journalist that I always plug because he's so brilliant, Raith Abdul Ahad. And he did this uh, piece about, you know, people making the trip. And one of the things he talked about is that this was a trip that when he was a young man in Iraq, he had tried to pay a smuggler to do and the smuggler like defrauded him and he didn't get to do it. But it was all under the control of smugglers. Whereas now, if you have a cell phone, like once you get from Turkey to Greece, once you do that little four hour boat ride, you just put on the GPS maps on your cell phone and you walk. Wow. You don't need smugglers after that. Isn't that crazy? It completely upended the into this entire like really like disgusting, nasty business. Well, similar in a lot of ways to the business of sneaking people over from Mexico. You know, I have a friend who he's been living in America for more than 20 years because I've known him for... I've known him for 18 years, so he's. I think he's been living in America for like 27, 28 years, and that's how he came over. He came over in a fucking van in the middle of the night, and they got out, and there was a guy behind them that had a, a stick, like a. They they would take like a giant, uh, like branch from a tree with all the leaves, and as they walked, one guy behind them would wave the branch back and forth to cover up their footsteps. Jesus, yeah. Yeah, and they they did it through the middle of the night. And um, they eventually got to some sort of border town, whether it's in Arizona or whatever. And uh, they made their way and infiltrated into cities and eventually found jobs and barely survived, barely fed themselves. And fuck, man, you just imagine that life. And then there's all these people. We've got to tighten up our borders. What the fuck, man? Like that, that tighten up that the border shit. I mean. Trump's like idiot idea of that wall that's not even like physically possible to build because it would have to go through all these like rivers and take over people's land and his like how do we get presidential candidates who not that they're stupid not that they're crazy but who like fundamentally deny physical reality like this is what this is where we are right now well, yeah I don't think he necessarily is a presidential candidate I don't buy it you think you think it's to make the other ones look moderate and reasonable no I don't think it's um, some grand conspiracy I think it's him riding this crazy wave of attention and trying to think in his own mind that it's justified because he's shining light on these important issues in a way that only he can because he's independently wealthy and he's not bound to you know the, um, the 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 wishes of his constituents. He can just kind of go out there and say, "I want to put a giant wall up and call it the Trump Wall," 
and and, and we're gonna keep out the Mexicans, yeah. <laughs> and meanwhile, everybody wants to fucking kill him, and you know, his face is falling off his bones. It's just it's so bizarre. It's so Cohen Brothers esque that like he really does seem like satire. I mean, he's like the ultimate American satire president candidate. Did you ever interview him like back before this? No, no, I've never met him. Nothing. I uh, I once uh, confronted him at a press conference in Dubai. It's like one of my my finest moments. Uh, I uh, <laughs> no, I was really scared because Dubai is uh, it's a police state. You know, there's yeah. no free speech there. It's real, real. You know, they'll lock you up, and they're rich enough. They don't really care about your American passport that much. And so I was at this press conference where he had these golf courses that he was licensing his name to, and I had some intel that the guys that were building the golf courses were getting two hundred bucks a month to do construction work. And like the Emirates, the average salary of an Emirati is, I think it's like 60,000 60, a year, I think. And so he's gets 200 a month, you know, to do like hard ass construction work. And so I get up during the press conference where he's getting his ass kissed and I wave my hand around and I, I say, you know, Mr. Trump, you've been saying how, you know, this all stands for luxury and your construction guys are getting $200 a month. Are you satisfied with that? And his mouth fucking shriveled. I've never seen it, it like shriveled with this little tiny rosebud of hate. And I got so yelled at. But um, He yelled at you? He didn't yell at me. The, the, the underling yelled at me. Who's he, the, under, the underling? From the Emirati PR firm that was there. What did they say? That's not an appropriate question. How is that not appropriate? I know. And then the next question was, Mr. Trump, you stand for luxury and Dubai stands for luxury. Is that why you and Dubai like each other? Some tough, tough uh, stuff. So did he answer you? No, just, he didn't. He didn't answer me. He just like just mouth shrivel. And like Ivanka's mouth went all small. Like everyone's mouth went really small with anger. Ooh, Ivanka. So this is a long time ago, right? Ooh, is that the drawing you yeah, made? Yeah, that's the drawing I made. <laughs> <laughs> he was so angry at me because I took like a little surreptitious picture of him. But yeah, he was like there talking about how uh, New York should be more like Dubai because in Dubai everything was perfect. What? Yeah, yeah. He, he like the ass kissing. He said that he built the greatest architectural buildings in New York. I beg to differ. Wow. He really I, said that. You know, yeah. my friend Joey Diaz grew up in New York and he said one of the things that people forget about Donald Trump is all the disputes that he had with small local construction companies that used they used for projects. And now these people like wound up going out of business and they you know they couldn't they couldn't battle him financially and like there's like this wave of people that hate him in that whole construction business. I don't know who's right and who's wrong about those disputes, but the idea that you could take that model, which is already problematic in America, and then take it and wrap it up in a giant way in Dubai, that fucking piece that Vice did on those people that are um, in Dubai that are trapped where they take their passports. I think, that, I, think I did a big piece on that. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, there was a... Um, um, how long ago was your last been, summer? No, this was a few years ago, like maybe six or seven years oh, ago. Man, nice. There was a um, a camp that they went to, and these men were just openly weeping. They were showing this like hole in the ground where they have to shit, and they were showing how poor the water is. And they had promised them uh, a substantial amount of money per month, and they were coming over from India and the Philippines, a lot of third world countries. And once they got there, they would take their passports away and then reduce their salary dramatically, you know, and they couldn't leave. And they were forcing them to build these structures. Exactly. Yeah, it's totally like that. And then the other really fucked up thing is that 
like these guys, they're not passive. Like they try to strike and stuff, especially very often, not only do they reduce their salaries, they just don't pay them. Like, and can you imagine like you have like a wife and kids at home, you know, who are like depending on you to like go to another country and, you know, make, make money for the family. And then you just don't get paid for three months. Like it's like, you know, breaking a whole family. And so these guys will do strikes. They'll do sit downs in front of the buses and then they haul them off to jail and deport them when they do that. It's, it's scary. It's so scary that it's again, what we're talking about, the spectrum of human behavior that it, I mean, it's like a few steps away from being a serial killer, but it's just this s s sort of pathological detachment from compassion, you know, that you don't, you don't care about these people that are risking their lives to make these giant buildings that are, these royal people are going to walk on roses that they throw at their feet and step into these things and go skiing in the middle of summer in these gigantic buildings they make. They make these crazy fucking structures over there because they, they almost have an unlimited budget. It's almost like they have like um, an idea in their head, you know, I would like to fly indoors. And they're like, okay, we're going to build you a mile high fucking gigantic building where you could fly inside. And, you know, and then you have planes that you could fly indoors like I, I shouldn't even have said that because someone in Dubai is probably listening and ding a light bulb went off in their head yes an indoor flight course and it's what's so strange is like I was prepared to like hate Dubai how Dubai looked like I hate how Dubai is but I mean I was prepared to like aesthetically hate it as well as ethically hate it but what's weird is when you go there it's beautiful that's the thing it's like I remember I was looking at that building, like the Shard, you know, the world's the world's tallest um, building, Al Burj. Did you go in it? Um, I went onto the ground floor and I bought a twenty dollar cup of coffee. Twenty dollars? <laughs> yes, yeah, twenty dollars. Oh my god, how did it taste? Like a fucking cup of iced coffee. <laughs> it, was, it was that was just sort of a Veblen object. But so I was like going into, I was going into it like prepared to like really like aesthetically judge it too. And like the thing is, it's like so beautiful. And then I was remembering, I was like. Versailles is also beautiful and mm. look at how that was made and it was this weird thing because you you think about how splendor is always made and how like the most beautiful things in the world you know always are constructed and you definitely go there and you're like this is the city of the future and this is the new aristocrats and this is beautiful and it's all being built by slaves who are dying to build it well, I don't know if it's the future, but it's definitely the future of that area. But they just have this just strange world where it was incredibly poor up until just a few decades ago. And then all of a sudden, they start pumping oil out of that place, and the money is astronomical. And the change in the amount of money that area has, and the few that have it, the, 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 the disparity of wealth is just unimaginable. One of the kind of interesting things that uh, they did in Abu Dhabi, which actually I, I kind of adm I admire it, is that in a lot of countries when they get oil money, like someone steals it, you know, up top. But in Abu Dhabi, what they did was they uh, gave citizens a lot of entitlements to stuff like you get free education. If you're an Emirati, you get uh, free health care, housing, get a stipend. Uh, Emirati women are like super, super educated. Most uh, Most of the PhDs are Emirati women. So like that's awesome. But the thing is... The flip side of that is like citizens are only 10% of the population and it's like 90% 90, 90 of the people, the people who do everything, like the engineers, the shop the shop workers, the maids, the um, you know construction dudes, like the people who do every manner of work are not citizens and have no rights to anything. Wow. That's a trip. We're, you know, we're looking on the outside at that place 
I mean, I, I've I've talked to people that have, I've been I've been to Dubai and I've been to Abu Dhabi. I was there for a UFC event, and uh, you, you know, without getting into anything political, it's beautiful. You know, and you're like, wow, these these people have done a great job in constructing these things. But the guy, <laughs> the guys that I, were, I was with, uh, some of them uh, went to. Uh, they went to Dubai because we had the night off, and I, I was tired, so I decided to stay home. They went to Dubai. They're like, ah, we're going to go to a bar and you know have it just some places you can go to drink. Like You have to yeah. drink in certain places because it's illegal to have alcohol, but there's some sort of weird loophole. And they said it was all Russian prostitutes. They said it's just like these predatory coyote women <laughs> that had like, crossed over and just like looking to, to just uh, pocket cash from banging all these rich dudes. I was like, whoa, like I, the, my friend went to a bar and he said, I'm not bullshitting. This bar might've been 80% hookers. And I go, that might, he goes, I've never seen anything like it in my life. Yeah, women go over there to like, you know, to, make, to make some serious money. Um, I bet you can, I bet you can fucking clean it up. But it's it, probably really dangerous too, right? You know, I never did. I never really did research on like sex work in Dubai, like my or in, in Abu Dhabi. Like I know mostly about construction work and something about the maids, and not so much. But I think for anyone who's not a citizen, it's dangerous because you like don't have any real rights if you're not a citizen. Yeah, I remember. I think it was a British couple that were making out on the beach, and they were arrested. They were just kissing. They were just, but they were openly showing affection on the beach, and they were thrown in jail. I'm like, well, how about this? There's another one. This is the craziest one. There was a British man who um, he had eaten a poppy seed bagel, and poppy seeds will you will test positive for heroin if you eat like it's trace amounts, but obviously it's not enough to be psychoactive, but it's enough to show up in a really comprehensive blood examination. So they tested this guy. And uh, he tested positive for heroin, and they put him in a fucking cell. They're like, he had a poppy seed bagel at Heathrow Airport, and that bagel got him locked up in a jail cell. Like, whoa. There's another woman who is an executive at Brillstein Gray, which is a very uh, prominent Los Angeles uh, entertainment group. And uh, she had... Um, what is that shit that people take? It's a it's a natural thing. Oh, um, you take it when you want to go to bed. Uh, Valerian? No, 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 no. It wasn't that. It was uh, melatonin. Yeah, yeah. She had melatonin. Fucking melatonin? Yes. You can't have melatonin. They arrested her, locked her up, took her passport, put her in a jail cell for fucking melatonin, and then you know somehow or another somehow got word of it and they got her out eventually. But what a terrifying moment it must have been for her. There was another guy who had a marijuana seed like, or a stem or a piece of marijuana that was wedged in between the tread of his shoes. That was it. And that was enough to put him in jail. And he was going to be sentenced for some fucking astronomical amount of time. And I don't know what happened to that poor guy. But unfortunately for him, he was a black guy with dreadlocks from England. And they were like, uh-uh, dude. Forever. Cage. Forever. Yeah, it's a really, really, really racist Some of the there. Horror, here we go right here. Some of the horror stories have been reported by the BBC. Four-year jail term for possession of 0 0.003 grams of cannabis stuck to the bottom of his shoe. That's the guy. That's Keith Brown. Robert I Dalton on trial for alleged possession of 0 0.3 grams of cannabis. 0 0.03. Unnamed 20-year-old on trial for alleged This is all cannabis, mostly. I had this one dude I met there. He's he's Emirati, and 
he was really interesting. His name is Ahmed Mansour, and he, I mean, like, he's so brave, right? Because you have so many privileges, like as an Emirati, especially he came from like a good family and everything. You know, you can really just coast if you're Emirati and you're, you know, from a well-off family. And he made a web forum that let people um, discuss, uh, basically discuss the royal family, frankly. And it also, it let people discuss religion kind of frankly. And if you were an atheist, you could talk about it on the web forum. And they fucking, they locked him up for, was he in jail for, I have to, I have to check this, but I want to say it was around nine months. And they infected him with scabies when he was in jail. Oh. And then when they let him out. They infected him purposely? They... Yeah, that's what he said. He said that they like gave him a blanket that had scabies on it. <sighs> And then when he was out, he had this series of uh, unfortunate events that happened. Uh, over $100,000 accidentally disappeared from his bank account and no one knows how it got how it got missing. And then like on two occasions, uh, guys just sort of jumped out and beat the shit out of him and no one knows who they were, you know? It's a mystery and his car just gets stolen all the time and the tires keep getting air taken out of it and, you know, <sighs> magical mystery. No one knows who's behind that. Uh-huh. Fuck. Yeah, could you imagine if you, like, pissed off some royal family and they just hired some dude and they pay him and your job is to fuck with this guy forever. Like, that's it. That's your job. Or, you know, if you're, like, some sort of a rich billionaire character, you could hire a bunch of people. You could have a whole team, you know, and th their job is just to fuck with people. There's this one guy. I don't like him. Let's go get him. I mean, that wouldn't be hard. Like, if you're, like, some Trump guy and you've got billions of dollars... And someone like Molly Crabapple makes you feel like shit at some Dubai press event. And you're like, fuck this bitch. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to hire a team. And I'm going to fuck with Molly Crabapple's life. I mean, that's a reality. Like, someone who's that wealthy, they could do something like that. That's they, scary shit. Yeah, they definitely, they definitely, they definitely could. Yeah, they could hire someone just every time you go out to your car, your tires are flat. Like, what the fuck? Fuckers! At a certain point, though, you'd probably put up, like, a little cam on your car and, you know. Yeah. Or you'd hire some people, too. Yeah, exactly. And it'd be like, war of the proxies. <laughs> war of the proxies. That's it, right? Yeah, I don't know. What are Have you gone to any places that were positive in your journalism escapades? I love Istanbul. Uh, Istanbul's like one of my favorite cities ever. It's just so gorgeous, and it's so exciting. And you walk down like Istiklal Jadesi, which is um, sort of the main street in a neighborhood called Beolu. And it's like there's like lights and all these couples hand in hand and everyone's playing music. There's like kids selling flower crowns. It's just like it feels like the sort of boulevard that every other boulevard in the world was trying to be. It's so magic. And I mean, I could I could just walk around Istanbul like any time of day or night and I would never not like have my heart beat fast for that city. Wow. So that's your favorite spot? That's my favorite spot. Do you think you could ever be an expat, move to Istanbul and... They're arresting a lot. Of, they they have a bad record, unfortunately, for arresting journalists there. One of the uh, one of my <laughs> colleagues, yeah, one of my colleagues at Vice, uh, this um, brilliant uh, Kurdish dude, um, Mohammed Rasul, he is like currently in jail right now for doing journalism in Turkey. And Vice is like you know trying really hard to get him out, but he's like rotting in a jail cell. And they claim that he is ISIS because he used encryption. He is a Kurdish dude. He's a Kurdish dude that like covers all of the anti-ISIS stuff. He's not he's not ISIS. This is so embarrassing and inane. And yeah, he's he's rotting in a jail cell there. How long has he been there? Oh god, it's over I think it's going to be going on 3 months now. And they I don't think they've even really charged him yet. They've just like leaked statements to the press. Whoa. But um that that aside, I, I you know the the 
political repression aside, I, I really do find Istanbul to be a marvelous city. <laughs> no place is perfect. They charge it. So what is his actual, what, what is their grievance with him? What is the actual issue? He was going with these two British vice journalists and they were covering uh, clashes between the uh, Turkish government and uh, Kurds mm. in the south and they picked them up doing that. So they just decided they didn't like him, like what he's doing, causing well, trouble. Well, they, they've been actually like deporting and fucking with a lot of journalists who have been doing this. But I think I think it's like they the two British guys got out because you know they're British. Whereas if you're an Iraqi Kurd, like no, who's gonna who's gonna be the person putting pressure on Turkey for you? Well, I'm sure you're aware of that Saudi Arabian blogger that's been beaten repeatedly. They, right. They, they, yeah, that's that's a fucking horrible story too. That's one of the weirdest aspects of the United States rep, uh, relationship with Saudi Arabia. It's like we'll talk about all the atrocities that are committed by all these different countries, but Saudi Arabia is like. Mm -hmm. They're allies. Yeah, they're moderate, and and like meanwhile they like sent they sentenced a poet to death for poetry in Saudi recently. How bad was the poetry though? Was it like death jam slam comedy? You know those things. Why, why are you poetry shaming? Why are you free, why are you why do you have to free verse shame right now? You know, free like, verse. Yeah, free verse. Free is verse that what shame. they call it? Or, no, free isn't verses? isn't free verse when you make poetry that doesn't like rhyme or have any meter or anything? That's a haiku. No, a haiku is a short one, right? I'm not right much into poetry, but I remember I, I've gone to I went to a poetry slam in. Venice once, which is the perfect place to go because people take themselves so fucking seriously. And I was with a, a buddy of mine and we were high as you should ever be while you were <laughs> in public walking around talking to people, like barely aware of reality. And we uh, walked by this place and it was a poetry slam and we ha I'm like, we have to go inside. We have to go inside. And we went inside and we were both like biting our hands trying not to laugh because it was just so prep preposterous. Just like, you know, that really just pretentious, save the world type poetry. Yeah, 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 I do, I done do. Done by 20 year old white guys with dreadlocks. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, I think as a visual artist, I have a similar thing when I see like really, really bad artwork and I'm just like, mm. not only are you shaming yourself, you're shaming my whole profession here. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I also like, as I've gotten older and I've sort of, understand the nuance of life like what this guy's doing his stupid shame champ slam whatever poetry <laughs> what he really is doing is just trying to express himself and he's developing as a person and right now it's kind of ridiculous to other people that are maybe a little bit more well-versed in the ways of the world and with a more social experience but what he's trying to do is like he sees the world is wrong and he wants to get social brownie points by pointing it out and you know and people clap and cheer and he's so he sat down on this loose leaf binder and wrote all this stuff out and he just feels like he's really got and one day he'll look back at that and go what a fucking moron I was just like I'll look back at I have a comedy notebook from 1990 and I should probably burn it in case someone breaks in my house and finds it, dude, and or when, when publishes you, it, if you like, if you die, then someone will publish the collected papers of Joe Rogan, and this will be your most famous thing. It's like a, a bit in there about Wonder Woman, like trying to explain Wonder Woman. It's so bad, but it, I was, you know, twenty-one years old or whatever the fuck I was at the time. It's like, it's just that's what you you when you suck and when you're young. I mean, it takes a while. To I get sucked good at for anything. so many years. I sometimes I look back at my old drawings and I'm like, how did I ever get hired as an artist? What delusional process did I ever think that I would be an artist? Putting these things out there and again and again and again in the face of very deserved rejection for many years. But it worked out, right? Because like if you just keep chipping away at it. 
and eventually, eventually yeah. get through. And I really, I tried to actually really write about that in my book because I feel like sometimes a lot of artists, they front and they act like, oh, I was just really good from the start and then it was really easy. And I was like, no, I, I sucked from the start and it was really hard. <laughs> yeah, most comedians will tell you that they suck from the start, except the ones that aren't that good, which will claim that they were always awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the ones, I think all my friends that are, that are really good, they'll all tell you they fucking, they were terrible. I have um, two young daughters, and one of the cool things is watching their art. Like, they're really into art, especially my seven-year-old is really into it. She draws every day. Oh, that's so cool. And um, w I watch her early stuff. Like, I save all her stuff, and I w or at least representations, like, you know, like some of it. And watching, like, their early, like, control of her motor skills and her hands from the time she was, like, three to four years later, there's just dramatic difference in what she's ability, you know, her ability to draw things and draw representations and, and figure out like perspective and sizes. And we were going through this book yesterday. She has this um, how to draw uh, figures book. And it was the weirdest fucking thing because um, it was these princesses and she's trying to draw princesses. And um, I'm, I'm looking at the book and we're going through it together and you know it's like one of those books where you have a framework you know like you there's yeah. like balls and sticks and you try to like make the framework and then you add the clothes to the framework and yeah totally but the women's legs were like more than twice as long as they should have been oh when you're trying to do those like fashiony cartoon drawings everyone is like so stretched out and what's, yeah. what's weird is that you get so used to seeing that that when you see like cartoon people done at their real proportions they all look like weird and stubby yeah well that's got to be weird for because it doesn't seem that way for men like I was looking at the the representations of men they're fairly proportionate but with with women it was all these insanely long legs and insanely skinny bodies and I was like this is fucking strange so much so that I had to point it out to her you know she's like uh, you know she's drawing it I go well here's the deal you know I'm like this is you, you can draw it like this one of the beautiful things about art is you can do whatever you want if you want to make people that have giant hands that are the size of those foam number ones that people wear at a football game yeah. you could totally do that no one can stop you because it's, it's just drawing is your expression whatever you want to do but if you want to draw like a real person and so then we started I started showing her like a real human body I'm like okay I'm gonna stand up and I'll stand up next to the wall and what we're gonna do is we're gonna mark on the wall where the top of my head is and where my waist is oh that's so cool gonna, that you did that with yeah. her that's awesome and so we went from the top of my head to the waist and then we went from the waist down to the feet and I said and you notice that like they're pretty much the same or at least close but the women in these cartoon things that you're supposed to draw were no bullshit. There was twice as much length in their legs as there was from their waist up to their head. And she was like, well, why do they do that? And I go, well, think, some people think that it looks better to make people that aren't real, that, that are like longer than reality. But like, why do we accept that? Because like, if there was a woman and th she had like a, like a normal proportion body, but enormous tits, just freakish tits. Like everybody would look at that and go, what the fuck are you making these kids draw? <laughs> you know, but for for whatever reason, like having the, and, when, and by the way, some people have freakish tits. Like yeah. there, there's there's people that for whatever reason, like there's that, that poor dude who can't go to the airport without getting frisked because he has this giant hog. He has like some 20 inch dick. He's like, they got the world's largest dick. And like they, they always check his pants because they think he's carrying drugs or something. Well, there's women out there that are just naturally born with enormous breasts, and there's nothing they can do about it. There's no one born 
with no one there's no one six feet tall and only two feet of them are upper body and the rest of it is legs that just doesn't exist yeah no it's it's crazy and they even when i was at art school we would have a different formula for drawing figures and there was like they would measure it in heads so it's like this figure is nine heads and a fashion figure which what they called it, which is, you know, the figure for a fashion illustration was like so many more heads than like any other figure. And so it was like that crazy elongated thing. And exactly what you're saying with like the crazy daddy long legs legs. It's very strange because for men, we I've never talked to a man who understands that look because men are not attracted. I mean, I'm sure everybody varies. Right. But most men are not attractive to these stick figure people. But women are expected to be stick figure people to be models. It's one of the weirdest things. And then women think that in order to be attractive, they have to be like these media representations of women. So they have to starve themselves. And then men are like, no, don't do that. No one likes that. But it's like there's this weird disconnect between what the opposite sex or I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for lesbians, obviously, but what the opposite sex finds attractive and the representations of attractive women like sucked in cheeks basically like on death's door like yeah she's hot like no that's weird it's it's weird to see someone all cracked out and skinny like that being the most you know rep the most obvious representation of like a, a beautiful person in nice clothes i mean i think it's you know fashion models aren't for men you know or they're not for they're not for straight men they're supposed to appeal to women who are buying the clothing but, but do they even i don't i mean i think you know, fashion. I think you know, women of all sizes, skinny, skinny, whatever. I think, sure, all, I'll, I'll be super beautiful as long as that's really you. Yeah, right? yeah. As long as you're not like harming yourself to do yeah. it. But um, I think that I don't know. I think the idea is that you can just hang any clothing on them, and it doesn't affect the hang of the clothing. So it's mm. like almost like they're as close to it being like a coat hanger as possible. I think that's the theoretical underpinnings of it. Um, but yeah, it's true. Like if you look at like a like a Playboy model or like a model for like you know like a black men's magazine or you know like a model for Maxim, like they're like these super fit young women, you mm. know, who like have like really good like muscles and are really curvy. Yeah, well, people like men are naturally attracted to women with a certain amount of body fat. It's it's it's, it's a natural thing because to be healthy, like the whole idea of breasts and and butts and hips being attractive is because genetically women who have those things will carry children better and will be more likely to be able to nourish those children because they're healthy it's a total genetic thing so much so this is the weirdest aspect of it so much so that if a woman has fake boobs like you know they're fake you know there's no disconnect at all you're absolutely aware that she has gone through surgery to cut her skin stuff bags of water in there that make them stick out you're like oh but they stick out more <laughs> like men will be more attracted sexually and the sexual attraction is supposed to at least represent wanting to breed with that person like you you are not just tricked you're tricking yourself like it's the what like Fake boobs are one of the weirdest things of all time. If you really stop and look at it, if like we're if aliens came down from another planet, or even historians, because I guarantee you, like we were talking about, like Bradley Manning and Chelsea Manning, there's going to come a time in whatever not so distant future, the next hundred years, where they're just going to be able to turn you into a woman. 
You know, you're going to say, like, I don't want to be a woman anymore. I'd like to be a man. They'll make you a man for a year. And you're like, eh, I like being Molly better. You go back to being Molly instead of Mike. Molly and Mike, the show, right? And I think they're going to be able to do that with breasts. They're going to be able to do that with everything. They're going to be able to manipulate genetics to the point where, um, have you ever seen um, or listened to this Radiolab episode on CRISPR? I haven't. No, what's that? CRISPR is an, a new method of g- manipulating genetics that they that they um, have invented. It's a really super complicated thing that I'm going to butcher, but they've invented it by studying the DNA of viruses, and they figured out how to utilize that that sort of method to manipulate eventually, at least, human DNA to the point wow. where they're going to be able to change your traits. They're going, to be able to change, they're going to be able to change so many different things, introduce genes into specific areas of your body and fix problems or change things that you don't like. Or They're going to be able to do some fucking freaky shit. And this is just one invention that is, I think, 2012 it was invented. And by the time 2032 rolls around, who the fuck knows what they're going to have? I think we're really close to be able to to just completely manipulate human bodies but the point being when historians go back and they look at fake boobs they're gonna be like what the fuck were these people doing like how weird is this there's gonna be a Smithsonian that has like boxes of like silicone and this is the early days and (laughs) this is when they went to saline and you know we're gonna look at that stuff going what a strange time to be alive but the thing is though like with trickery and like matters of aesthetics I don't even like want to call it trickery I mean there's all sorts of things like you can like totally like admire like think a guy like looks really hot in a sharp suit even though you know it's not really his skin you know what I mean right it's it's not there's there's a whole like sort of visual appreciation of other Mm. people that doesn't necessarily just have to do with like what's you know quote unquote real or like what's your genetic heritage that's really true. Like clothes are a great example. That's a really good example because that is weird. Like you see someone who's dressed sharp and you go, ooh, man, he looks great in that suit. Like that's a beautiful vest. Like, wow, that looks awesome on him. That's a strange thing. Like you look good with stuff on you. Yeah, exactly. You could hang stuff on you that makes you look good or professional or authoritative or all of these other things, even though like they're just like stuff that you're wearing. I wonder if that's a truth, the, the same with hermit crabs. Oh like if they God. pick out a good shell. Could you imagine, like, someone's like, I'm wearing, like, the really slick, cool shell. Like, I'm going to get all the girl hermit crabs right now. Yeah, probably, right? There's some weird things in nature with with animals doing things. like How about animals that can actually manipulate? Have you ever paid attention to octopus at all? Um, Octopi? You know, I'm, like, I- I'm pretty shamefully ignorant. You might have to educate me here. I had, well, apparently cuttlefish are just as bizarre, if not more. But my friend Remy Warren is a, um, he's a host of a show called uh, Apex Predator, where they, um, they monitor, they, they sort of um, try to emulate the different uh, attributes that certain predators have and how how they survive and see like if there's like some uh, human version of that and and um, they, they they like check out like how uh, it's called heron is that those tall birds herons herons how do you say that heron herons um, like how they walk with their crazy long legs and then stab at the water looking for like frogs and shit and he did one on octopuses and 
out of all the different animals we were talking about, he was like, you know, there's all these cool animals. They were talking about like how wolves will chase down packs of elk and how they corner them and in these canyons and draws and how they figure out how to trap them. It's really fascinating. But when he started talking about octopus, he's like, dude, you have never, they are fucking aliens. Like, look at these things. Like, look how they can change their colors. Like, this is real. They can change their colors and immediately adapt to their environment to the point where they're indistinguishable from the background. This is amazing. Wow. Oh, oh, they're insane. They're insane. Wow. They're, they're, they, can, they can instantaneously, like within fractions of a second, change the outside of their body to look exactly like a coral reef, not just in the image, not, but in the texture. They do all kinds of, they can change themselves to look more like predators or like dangerous things. It's, it's incredible what they can do. We live in the coolest world, my God. Oh, the world's amazing. The world of the ocean is still, like um, there's some new project that they're doing right now um, where they're trying to map the ocean floor. And they're, without a doubt, they're gonna discover some freaky fucking fish life, marine life down there that we've never uh, encountered before. But just these creatures, we're just starting to learn what these things are doing. Like, look at that. Like, like, like a flower or something yeah. blossoming like on, on fast motion. What, oh my God, what a, is, what is that? That's an octopus. That's an octopus. But it looks like a, looks like a mm -hmm. tiny, like... A Wookiee or something. Yeah, it looks like a video Ewok. game character running. Yeah. But watch this. It, it, it can merge with these um, coral reefs, and it looks like a coral reef. So it's literally developed this ability to turn its body into the shape of a reef, and then it's little tiny... I mean, it's it curls its tentacles up into little tiny legs and runs on two legs it's fucking incredible they're amazing wow and look it's like 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 a teardrop shape that's so cool yeah it's it's amazing i would always draw octopuses just because they're like fun to draw with all the tentacles and stuff but my god yeah i had no idea i had no idea like and the fact that they can do it like that they just change You're like fucking what a weird and they communicate with each other somehow through that. And we don't know how. We know they're really fucking smart, though. Are they going to take it all over after we destroy everything? The octopi are going to rule the Earth? Well, that's something I've been like really dwelling on lately when it comes to marine life and dolphins and orcas. And I'm, I'm a huge believer that they are just as intelligent as us, if not more. And that what we're doing with SeaWorld and all these wild dolphin shows is nothing less than slavery. It's slavery of some alien intelligence that we can't communicate with we don't understand what they're saying so we're like um can hear you i don't know what you're saying so <laughs> fucking jump for fish or starve it's your choice and um I've, I've thought about it like our ideas about what is intelligent like we don't think that something's intelligent unless it does exactly what we do when we when we think of intelligence we say okay well molly send me an email i send her an email back i know she's intelligent she's communicating through an email the dolphin doesn't know how to fucking make an email he's an idiot you know like but they don't need email like why do we need email we need email because we need to communicate well they can communicate for miles through the water with their chirps and their noises they recognize each other from you know years and years being apart from each other even though to us they all look the fucking same they can move and manipulate through 3D space in the water. They don't need a house because they're smart enough to go where the water's warm. Fish is everywhere and it's free, so they don't need jobs. So all these ideas that we have, as like what represents intelligence, all that stuff's stupid. 
Because to them, if you're like, well, I'm going to build a house and drive my car to work, they're like, what are you talking about, bitch? You're under the water. <laughs> like, if you did all They'd be like, I'm going to hoard all the fish in my thing and then like, kill them and then I'll like sell you the fucking fish for kelp. That's a great idea. Yeah, they'd be like, what? You know, like, like you're I'm high, gonna, dolphin. I'm going to write you a letter from my laptop. Like, there's no internet down here, stupid. <laughs> there, there's no, like, you're a crap dolphin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your, your, your fucking laptop's not going to work underwater, asshole. <laughs> it's going <laughs> to. So, all of our ideas about what what's intelligent is only based on our ability to manipulate our environment or create things that didn't exist. So our intelligence is a very bizarre intelligence because we, we're the only intelligence that can not just manipulate our our environment that's local, but our environment globally. Like we can we we can essentially change the weather. We can spray. We can cloud seed and make it rain and play. Like that's one of the weird things they do in Abu Dhabi. They make it rain every week. They do it on purpose. They spray the sky with some sort of silver something or another that makes it, I don't forget what the exact compound is, but it, it actually causes it to rain. And they've been doing it like once a week for years. They have rainstorms that they manufacture. We're freaks. We're freaks, and our intelligence is fundamentally built on dissatisfaction, which, I mean, we have to have because we're also like, weak and not apex predators necessarily and we're getting weaker i think too i think that's p part of it you know if you went back to the early humans and you compared like our tendons and bone structure and are they are they really humans are they are they stronger than us i always thought they were like shorter and stuff neanderthals were so but they're not really humans right they're like a type of human and that how they uh categorize them yeah they were way stronger than us though they weren't just stronger than us they were like really short they were like five foot, five foot two, and but like two hundred and twenty pounds, just fucking gorilla like, Damn. with super thick bones and thick heads, and and they, have, they they don't really know exactly how intelligent they were either. There's all this speculation as to whether or not they figured out tools on their own, or whether they copied them from Homo sapiens, and, and where Homo sapiens came from, and did they interbreed? And there's debate on that as well, and. It's uh, and then they're always finding these fucking new. They found another one like within the last couple of weeks. They found another new species of human that was, they didn't know this? existed. They found some large tooth that uh, turned out to be not category. It was a human tooth, but not categorized in any previous version of human beings that they were aware of before. They found quite a few of them now, including the, I'm sure you've heard of like the the Hobbit people. They found the island yeah, of Flores. Yeah. Like, that was 14,000 years ago. That's not that long ago. Fuck! Not, I mean, that's not before the beginning of recorded history, is it? It's, well... Like, or it's a little bit before. A little, it depends on whose version of the beginning of recorded history is. There's a, a, a bunch of people that believe... Um, there's this guy that I've had on my podcast a few times now. His name is Randall Carlson, and he's an expert in um, cataclysmic events, and uh, especially uh, asteroidal impacts. And uh, him and this guy Graham Hancock have uh, worked together. And Graham Hancock wrote this book called Fingerprints of the Gods. It was a really controversial book in the 90s. And then now he has a new one called Magicians of the Gods, which is it sort of shows how much of his early work that was uh, like widely criticized was actually substantiated now by science. Nice. Where these ancient structures that didn't make any sense that they were trying to figure out like who fucking built these? Like how, who are, how are they here? And archaeologists sort of tried to put like vague dates on them. And the idea behind it was that 
civilization has not evolved and it's not progressed on a, a straight plane, but rather there's been these peaks and valleys. And that what has happened is people have gotten this very high level of sophistication and culture, and then massive cataclysmic disasters have wiped people out almost to the brink of extinction, and then they've risen back up again. So like science has like found quite a few of them, but one of the big ones they keep pointing out is that there's uh, somewhere around 12,000 years ago, there was a series of uh, impacts on the earth. And this has been proven by science now because over the last few years, they've discovered this stuff called, I think it's called tritonite, but it's essentially called nuclear glass. And it exists around where they um, do nuclear tests. And it also at, exists at meteor impact sites. And it's the impact creates heat that's so intense it turns sand and rock to glass. My God. Yeah, and they find this stuff all throughout Europe and all through, and it's all around the same time period, which also coincides with the end of the Ice Age. And it also coincides with a thousand plus years later, the beginning of modern civilization, agriculture, mathematics. And so their, their theory is that that wasn't exactly the beginning, yeah. but that was a rebirth. And there was most likely thousands of years of civilization that existed before that, but it was almost entirely wiped out when people were just bombarded with rocks from the sky. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, especially when societies were less interconnected. Like the whole reason you know, stuff, various like, you know, math or astrology survived the dark ages in Europe was because in the Middle East, people were able to keep it alive. We live in a time now where unless they literally wiped out everyone, it'd be very hard to do that. But in a world where people don't have that level of communication, where they don't have that level of connection, where they don't have that level of knowledge sharing, it would be very easy for one society to kind of you know, get to that peak and then something horrifying happening to it and no other societies could carry on that legacy. Yeah. I mean, it would be pretty easy, especially today in our culture, because everything has become digital. It's one of the weirdest things about us advancing and evolving is that as things move to the cloud and as things become much, I mean, much less physical books like your book here, but much more like laptops and Kindle. I have a Kindle and it has 150 books on it or something like that. It's that thin. It sits right in my backpack. I mean, the what? That's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. It's like this magician's thing, but also you could potentially like drop a server that had the only copy of something and have that only copy disappear. Yeah, be gone. Vanish. Yeah, and if the power goes out, you're not getting any of this stuff. I had a friend who was um he was going back into an area where he couldn't bring books because there were checkpoints and um it had a lot of and he um had a his iTunes account was something that like it just you the country that it was tied to, you couldn't buy good ebooks on. So I remember I was getting him, I got him all these pirated copies of like 1984 and like James Baldwin and Catch 22 and stuff to read. And, you know, he only has like a few hours of power a day and he's like reading like 1984 on his phone. And it was like the craziest illustration of both the like ubiquity of, you know, a book and also the limits of it in the sort of cloud age. Yeah, there's a lot of limits of it. Our entire society is dependent upon the grid. If the grid goes down, almost none of this stuff is effective. But by the same token, he could smuggle all these books past checkpoints and no one knew he had them. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's there's definitely, if you're in a war-torn area yeah. like that, it's, it's a great... It's just, to me, it, it freaks me out when I think of if something like that happened. Like, there was... Um, 
a, a big event. I think it was in Indonesia in like 70,000 years ago. They think that civilization was wiped out to the point of there being only a couple thousand people left on the planet. Yeah. A super volcano erupted. Um, if anything remotely like that happened, we would instantaneously be brought right back to where people were 50,000 years ago. Well, most of us don't have any sort of skills to maintain or rebuild anything. I mean, I don't. I I know if there was like the zombie apocalypse, I, I'd be like fucking food or something. Yeah. And if we broke into Home Depot, like there's a Home Depot that's like a few miles from here. How many fucking people could get a hammer from there? There's a lot of people out here. You know, there's not enough. There's not enough hammers. Yeah. I mean, we, we wouldn't even I mean, we'd hope the shelters that we have hold up. But then where are we going to get food? Like what unless we get into the ocean and go fishing? Like, what are you going to shoot deer? How many deer are there? Like five in this whole neighborhood, you know? Well, like the level of population density we have could never be supported by like traditional agriculture ever. Not anymore. No, it's weird. You know what else is weird? A friend of mine pointed this out. He goes, why is it that when you walk down the street, you see all these plants, but none of them grow food? Like everyone grows plants everywhere, but they're all these fucking useless plants. Like what, wouldn't it be amazing if like cities were filled with plants that grow fruit and all the, the grasses and stuff you saw were edible and there was lettuce everywhere. Like literally everything had food on it. Like it would be just the same amount of water used, but you would actually get something out of it. But we're so rich that we're like, nope, pine trees. You know, I want an oak. I want a beautiful oak here. Like we don't, you know, we don't support the, 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 the trees and the, the, the plants around us that we can actually eat. I remember one time I was in um, Spain and I was like 17 and I was broke. And I was with my, my, my friend and we saw like, wow, these orange trees. You steal a lot of oranges and we like climb up the tree and we like steal all the oranges. And then we like peel them and then they're like bitter and dry. And we're like, these are fucking decorative oranges. They tricked <laughs> us. They tricked us. But they're, 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 these oranges are lies. And I... I think that they specifically probably planted those type of oranges to avoid bad people like us climbing their trees and stealing all of them. Isn't that funny? You're a bad person because you're doing what people have done for the last exactly. Plus yeah, years. we're a bad person for picking fruit from a tree. How strange! It's it's just and it's also probably those were what oranges really tasted like before we started fucking with them. I refuse to believe them. that. That's a cruel world. <laughs> well, they they know that the fact for like corn and a lot of other food was like really gross before. People started manipulating it. Truth, truth, but oranges. I wanna, I wanna believe that like prehistoric oranges were a tasty treat, and these were not. I don't know. I, I, I ate an apple the other day, and me and my friends were laughing while we were eating these apples. We're like, these fucking things have definitely been fucked with. Like they were big, yeah, big giant, and they were so juicy. We're like, what kind of genetically modified shit are we eating right now? Because these are just not normal apples. Giant, juicy, delicious apples. Probably in like the middle of apple off season too. Yeah, probably. You ever had a crab apple, Molly crab apple? I have a photo of me under a crab apple tree, but I don't, I don't know if I've ever. <laughs> Fred took that one. I don't know if I've ever eaten a crab apple. Man, I, I, I'm sure this will get remedied someday, but uh, not, not yet. I don't think. Really? Yeah. I mean, I. Oh no! You're. Oh my God! You're right. God, I'm getting like deep into the memory bank. When I was um, seven and I lived in Far Rockaway, I think one of the neighbors had a crab apple tree or it had the tree with the little apples. Those are the yeah, crab apples. Those are the crab apples. And I believe that um, I believe I stole some of them and I believe they're very sour. Is that yeah. I remember them? Yeah, they're very sour. I ate one of those when I was a little kid. Well, more than once, I'm sure. When I was a little kid growing up in Massachusetts, I remember biting into those things. And I, like, 
yeah, so much hope. Yeah, they're good Supported. for throwing at people, though. That's what we used them for when we were kids. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> Chuck them at each other. Small and hard. like. Yeah, well, they, you know, your little tiny hands, you get a good grip on a crab <laughs> apple and really whip it. Nice, you nice. Um, what else you got going on these days besides, I know you're promoting this book. and uh, Besides that, so I'm going to, really excited about this, I'm going to India for a month because there's all these literary festivals in India. So I'm getting to go really? to, yeah, I'm getting to go to like Jaipur and Mumbai. And Have you been before? No, it's my first time in my life, so I'm really excited about that. And then besides that, you know, I think I'm reaching that point of burnout where I'm just I'm like actually planning to take a month off. I know it sounds like it sounds like fucking blasphemy, but I think I I'm gonna like lie on a beach in Goa or something and read a lot of books. And other than that, the only thing I really have to talk about is my super dork hobby, which is um, I've been studying. Um, literary Arabic for the last year, and I got pretty good at translating stuff, written stuff. Really? Yeah, yeah. I'm really pretty proud of it. I do this every morning. Uh, so I'm translating a like long uh, dialogue by the Syrian poet that's called Sex, Poetry, and the Revolution, and it is badass. So, but other than that, I... I think I'm actually going into that like time where I'm just making like a little blank space, and then at the end of that, I'll probably be back doing a bunch of journalism for Vice, doing stuff on prisons in the Middle East, working on my next book project, and I don't know, seeing seeing where life goes. Because the thing that's so strange about doing a memoir is it really is like sectioning off a chapter, you know, like, se like sectioning off you know 15 years of your life, and then you've taken all of that and you've put it into this book form, you've made it into an object, and then you go on to what's next. And I, I guess while I have the vague contours of that in my head, part of me just wants to do nothing for a while, and then the plan will come to me. I think that's a great idea. I'm, I'm thinking the same thing about my own life right now. I think I'm too involved in too many different things, and I, I, it could use like a reset, like a calming. Just a, I think you get... It's all good stuff, and that's the problem. And I think that's what you're experiencing as well. Like you have so many cool things you have going They're on. They're so awesome. I feel so lucky. Yeah. yeah. But it's but, if there's no space, it, I mean, can't absorb them. Yeah, it's like that that Louis C.K. thing about like never being bored. You know, I I mean, I have that in the best of all possible ways. I have like so many cool opportunities, but if you never have like any any time to like be bored or be down, you're just like bouncing from thing to thing and. Yeah, I think what I, is the Louis C.K. thing about never being bored? I'm not aware of it. Uh, it was like a monologue that he had uh, about where he was saying that since we have smartphones, basically. Oh, we that's right. Now I remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you never have like any space to feel anything or to or to be bored, and so you're just always in the state of distraction. And I think it can be like that with work stuff too. So after that, probably just probably just doing a bunch of journalism stuff. I work a lot with a really cool um, Syrian-American nonprofit that I'm going to plug here. They're called uh, Karam Foundation, and um, they... How do you spell that? K-A-R-A-M. And they do something really cool, because a lot of attention right now, it's on the Syrian refugees that make it to Europe, but they actually work with uh, people who are displaced inside Syria, and then also people like on the border. And for the last two years, uh, I've taken part in a program with them where we go down to these schools that are on the border and they bring like they bring uh, dentists that fix all the kids teeth they uh, bring uh, eye doctors that get all the kids glasses that need it but then they also bring like uh, writers and philosophers and um, architects and like you know people who teach classes with the kids and I always uh, I always do murals there I've done murals in two schools now and so next spring I'll probably be back with them uh, painting lots of 
rebellious cats all over a school in southeast Turkey. Wow, you live such a, a, a broad and fascinating life. I mean, you've had so many really intense experiences and 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 all over the place, like both all the place professionally and creatively and then geographically. There's so much going on like you. You've, you're not living a boring life. No, I feel so lucky. I mean, that's why it's so hard for me to be, I need to take a reset because it's like the whole world is so big and cool and I, I love so many things in it. Yeah, but I think I think your instincts are correct, though. You just It seems to me like you're just, you've got so much going on all the time, constantly in so many different arenas. Yeah, it's it's a lot, but... I don't know. It must be. It must be the same with you too. I mean, like you do. You know, you do comedy. You do this like super like thoughtful talk thing. You like host MMA stuff. You, I mean, you've done like so many fucking things. And I mean, it's just because like I feel, and perhaps you feel this way. Like the world is just so big and weird and interesting. And like I just want to like learn stuff. Yeah, I wish I could live ten different lives simultaneously. I'd have a bunch of different careers that I'd be interested in. Same, same, exactly. But it's like to do any of those things correctly requires so much attention and focus it's almost like you, you can't you can't enjoy too many things because you then the one thing that you enjoy the most or that you choose to enjoy the most you really can't focus on it correctly or else you just never ever ever have downtime ever <sighs> yeah i'm close to that i get close to that sometimes but it's not good but it's weird because like my non-downtime seems very recreational you know? Yeah, yeah, it's like it's super fun. Like I, I don't want to like complain. Like wow, I get to travel all over the world and meet fascinating people and confront bastards. Boohoo for me. And yet, <laughs> you know, you know, it at a certain at a certain point. You know, um, this is a, a big compliment, but um, uh, and I don't mean this in, in terms of an imitation, but your your drawing of Trump and Ivanka was very Ralph Steadman esque. Oh, I idolize that guy. I love uh, him. No, that's a, that's a massive compliment. Like I think that man is like a god amongst men. He's a bad motherfucker for sure. But that image is just so much like I think of it as like uh, the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. With like all the horrible like <laughs> the monster like toad people. Oh, it's yeah. so good. I've got that on framed on my wall, in my office, a print from. Uh, Stedman's illustration of the oh, Kentucky Derby. So cool. Have you ever yeah. had him, have you ever like had him on the show, or do you want to no, go to Kent? I would love to. I mean, I don't know if he's ever in Los Angeles, but I, I prefer to do these things in person. But if he's ever here, I would love to have him on just to talk to him about a hunter and what legend. it was like and what it was like the first time Hunter dosed him with acid. <laughs> <laughs> or when they when they went to when they went to like Rumble in the Jungle and Hunter mm -hmm. like sold their tickets and and he was like drawing it off the TV screen. Yeah, and he was swimming in the pool and he totally fucked the whole story up because he thought that Foreman was going to kill Muhammad Ali and he didn't want to see it, so he put a Richard Nixon mask on and swam around the pool. <laughs> yeah, the well, he to this day or well not to this day obviously he's dead but considered that one of his biggest journalistic failures and he went into a giant slump after he did that because like he realized that his decadence and his indulgence had actually gotten in the way of an amazing moment in history god yeah. just, just to realize like the fucking like beautiful beast that like you rode to being who you were like was turning around and like becoming mm. like a sort of cliche that was fucking up everything you liked well that's what that did you ever see the uh alex gibney movie uh gonzo the life and times I of didn't. dr hunter it's fucking incredible it's so good it's such a good documentary but that was almost like initially that's how they started the movie off 
he started the movie off explaining that at the end of his life, Hunter had really stopped being creative. The writing wasn't there anymore. The things that he wrote were like really middling. They weren't that good. And it was because his indulgences and his excesses had really cooked his brain. And he just had, he had become almost a caricature of, of himself. And along the line, some of the interviews, they had found him when he was a younger man and when he had started to become famous and he was actually worried about that very thing. He was saying, like, I, I can't even get out of my own way anymore and they don't even necessarily, when I'm, when I'm doing these things, I can't tell whether or not they want me and they want my take on things or whether they want reality itself. Like, and I, I'm, um, he goes, it's almost, it would almost be better if I died, like, for my own work. And that was like, wow, like this guy is like experiencing like a really early version of, well, it's also very rare that a journalist becomes that famous. So, so rare, so rare. But I mean, I think the problem was that he, at a certain point, he stopped growing and changing and pushing himself and it was just more comfortable to like stay in the mask. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, I think. Um, and also the, the the indulgences and the substances became not just a habit, but probably a physical addiction. And at that point in time, it's, he's more of a slave to that than he is even the the work itself. And the work itself is almost like something that he's eventually going to get to. I'll get to that eventually. I'll get to that. But it's just cocaine. We, we read off a list when Lance Armstrong was here yesterday of a, a typical day in the life of Hunter S. Thompson as far as... Oh, God, yeah. And it just starts with, like, massive... What, what, does it start with, like, ether or coke? What does it start with? It starts with... Uh, sh it's like Chivas Regal, cocaine, Dunhill cigarettes, <laughs> cocaine, Chivas Regal, coffee. Like, we read it all off. It's fucking preposterous. Like, you should be fucking dead. And then it, it says, at midnight, Hunter S. Thompson is ready to write. And this is, like, after getting up at three. Oh, God. You spend your entire time, like... <laughs> pouring like liquids into your head and then smoking things but for a while it worked man he wrote some insane shit during that time he wrote some amazing stuff for it's almost like he just redlined his brain never changed the oil and kept the metal and then this pinned. magnificent thing like happened yeah. until it like horrifically ground down i gotta be boring and i gotta go i'm really sorry get out of here I'm all right lame, well thank I'm you lame. no please no worries thank you so much for coming on and uh everybody drawing blood is the book i'm in the middle of it right now and it is excellent and your writing is really fantastic and honest and and just really really good stuff Thank so you so thank much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, you can follow Molly on Twitter, Molly Crabapple on Twitter. Same thing on Instagram, uh, website. MollyCrabapple.com. Go buy the book, fuckers. Thank you That's so much, it. Joe. Thank this you. is awesome. Thank you, Molly. Bye, everybody. That was so cool. Yeah, thank you. That was great. That was awesome.